We're still settling back into a bit of a groove after our hiatus earlier this year, but we wouldn't miss this holiday for anything. Happy Doug Jones Day, everybody! Hello, 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 and welcome to a very special episode of the Scary Stuff Podcast. This is Eric Dellinger, and I am wishing a very, very happy Doug Jones Day to co-host Nick Leamy. Why, hello. And Jacob Jones Goldstein. I am the visitor. Oh, won't you take me inside? <laughs> so that was my number one question. All right, enough of the Darkling voice, because no one's going to know why we're doing that. Just, nobody's seen this movie. Zero chance. <laughs> Actually, you know what? This is the movie where somebody's going to say, oh, I remember that movie as a kid, and I always couldn't figure out what it was. That's what we're going for here. I, I totally saw this. Did you? I totally saw this. Yes. Of course you did. <laughs> oh, this is going to be it's, good. It's funny because it was very clear But it was to on me. basic cable. Yeah, USA. How did you demean yourself? You were slumming it. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's funny because it's one of those things where, very spoiled now, you know, uh, we, we cut the cable, so all I watch is streaming now. So anything I watch, I watch in the beginning, period. You know, it might have commercials gone like like on hulu or something but you know i'm watching it from the beginning and it was funny watching this because it was very clear to me i'm like this is a memory of network television like usa at usa where i came in somewhere yeah, in the it middle ain't your of credit the union end. that we watched this on <laughs> yeah it was exactly right somewhere towards the end it suddenly clicked like i was watching like this is new this is new this is new oh god i've seen this <laughs> I've got the commercial for it. It's on YouTube, so I've got the little USA yeah, buffer. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I saw the ad, too. It was funny watching it, too, because it was very clear where all the commercials went. <laughs> like, I was like, this is a TV movie. But yeah, so before we end the film, happy Doug Jones Day, everybody. Happy Doug Jones Day. Happy Doug Jones. Woo! This is our fourth one, right? Fourth annual. Woo! And like I mentioned before, we talked in our Spookies episode about, you know, the kind of miserable shenanigans we've all had going on for the first chunk of 2023 but talking about happy things i had to look forward to and one of the things that kind of got me out of my funk legitimately was well shit doug jones day is coming up i don't want to miss doug jones day <laughs> and not just because of, uh, it was my turn it's become our little thing we've this is our fourth year doing it and yeah i was like oh shit i guess i better get around to watching that movie i picked because i i had pretty well decided on this sight unseen but i did want to see it before i confirmed it and then i saw it and said, oh yeah so, on the off chance, this is your first Doug Jones Day episode, so just real quick context. So, this goes back to our fourth episode, where we covered Mike Flanagan movies. His very first major horror feature is a movie called Absentia. Doug Jones showed up to work for one day on that film. That day was June 30th of its respective year. Mike Flanagan christened that Doug Jones Day. Jake said in the episode, all right, well, we'll celebrate Doug Jones Day going forward. And so we have. Every year. Every year. And kind of landed on a rotating selection of, of who's picking. So year one, I ended up picking Night Angel. Year two, <laughs> Jake picked Legion. And year three, Nick picked Hocus Pocus. 
Oh, God. That means Jake's next, isn't he? It means Jake's next. Ooh. Oh. I am next. No. No, 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 no. Gonna have to see if I can find something else that's Legion dumb. <laughs> I- I'm gonna be very curious. I'm willing to bet I can guess at least 50-50 what Jake's gonna pick. And then if it comes back around to Nick, I'd be willing to bet I can guess what Nick's pick will be, but we'll see. Challenge accepted. <laughs> <laughs> see, now I want to try and subvert your guess. <laughs> oh, do it. Because... Eric is playing mind games with us. He's like, Jake's going to pick this. I don't want him to pick that. So I'm going to say he's going to pick this. And he's dumb enough to not pick that then. <laughs> well, because here's the thing. Jake tends to go for the good movies when he can. I mean, yes. aside from Legion. I very much believe that, yes. And pretty much when you look at Doug Jones, God bless him. We we absolutely love Doug Jones. That's part of him, the fun about doing this is, you know, he's such a beloved actor and he's in so much fun stuff. But if you look at, the horror oeuvre of Doug Jones that's left, I'm pretty sure Jake's, he's either going to go Hellboy 2 or Mimic. He's totally going to go Mimic. They are on the table. <laughs> and it's, I'm 75% it'd be Mimic because he, I, I don't know how much Jake Doug Mimic, but Mimic has, Charles S. Dutton. It, it doesn't really matter because Charles S. Dutton's in right. Mimic. So. Which is why I picked Legion. <laughs> yes. <laughs> It's so every every third Doug Jones day is a leap Doug Jones day, which is Charles. Which is Charles Dutton Dutton. <laughs> See, every three years they coincide. Jake chose Legion, then he chose Mimic, then he chose Rock. <laughs> Good luck finding Rock. Good old Rock. Nothing beats Rock. No Rock. No There's rock. some episodes of Rock out there, but just I can't find a whole. You might find there. a random one on YouTube, but try and find it on DVD or streaming, and it might as well not exist. Yeah, I'll go digging. Yeah. I've been digging for a lot of stuff lately, so maybe I'll go poking around for it. Hence, the Darkling. <laughs> Whenever we go to a lot of, to conventions, there's always some guy there selling, you know, bootleg DVDs or whatever. I always look for Rock, and I, I've asked on occasion. They're like, "Rock, what the hell are you talking about?" I'm like, motherfucker. You have ads from 1968 bundled here, and you don't know what rock is? Go fuck yourself. Just want a home with a semi-detached wall. I think of that all the time, and nobody will ever have context for it. Which is actually going to relate to another anecdote we'll talk about later in this episode. Not rock, but me talking about things nobody has any context for. Alright, so you got Jake's guess out there. What's your guess from me? Newly Deads. It's on the table. Yeah. <laughs> it depends on whether or not we get to a trauma episode between now and two years from now. <laughs> not if I can help it. If, if we have, you might pick something else. If we haven't, I'm, <laughs> I bet money you're going newly dead. There's wider variety for you, but it's, you've talked about doing a trauma episode for a while. So if, if it hasn't come up in the next couple of years, then I might get impatient. <laughs> yeah. So we'll see. It's going to be an interesting couple of years ahead, but. So before we get into it, I just want to talk about something a little bit relates to life and our last episode. So last episode was our first episode back, and Eric was talking about how we prepare. You know, Eric is, you know, has some anxiety and hypes himself up. He gets into this, and then then Nick is like, hey, friends, and, you know, he's just very happy about it. And then he alluded to the fact that I basically go through the Game of Inches speech from (laughs) any given sunday which is somewhat accurate i guess so today i had to move a mattress and a box ring out of my basement and i could have waited for help but i didn't because you know i don't make good decisions 
And I did it. Nick might have noticed when he came up to the house today, there was a box spring and a mattress sitting on the front lawn. So it's going out in the garbage tomorrow. I, I was curious. So I'm, I'm trying to get this out of the basement. It keeps getting caught on the basement stairs. Because it's, you know, it's a queen-size mattress. I'm one person. This is very stupid. They're unwieldy, yeah. And at one point, I said out loud, I just needed one more fucking inch. And I realized the second I said it... We claw what? with our fingernails for that inch! <laughs> <laughs> that I was literally prepping for the podcast. <laughs> Podcasting is a game of inches! <laughs> with the way Eric said I was last time. <laughs> and I don't know if it felt good or bad, but it's like, yeah, all right. And it gave me the strength to get that damn mattress out of the basement. <laughs> so I appreciate that. Because I clawed for that inch. <laughs> so anyway, I thought I'd share. Man, I wish we were one of those big money podcasts so we could license the Jamie Foxx Any Given Sunday song for our outro for this episode. <laughs> Everything will be alright on any given Sunday. I really gotta watch that movie again. I've never seen it. Of course you haven't. No, I, I... <laughs> All right, so we've got an upcoming horror weekend. That's going to be one of my picks. It counts because a guy's eye gets knocked out. Yeah, just dangling by the nerve. And there's a chainsaw in it. And there's a chainsaw, yep. Okay, so we need to do any given Sunday with Hostile and Evil Dead. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Oh, that's They're the eye movie you picked? Oh, God damn it. <laughs> oh, that eye. That, uh... is, that is by far... The single worst eye injury I've seen in a horror film. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about the darkly. <laughs> Before we get rolling on this, I'm going to toss out just two quick plugs, very quick ones, just for previous podcasts. One is our guest from our Lord of Illusions episode, Dwayne Swarzynski. His anthology is out. Uh, this is called Lush and Other Tales of Boozy Mayhem. And it just <laughs> came out. It's available from Cimarron Street Books. And I, I haven't dug into it yet. I read the intro. The intro is fabulous. I'm still reading Kill Radio and then Megan Abbott's book, Beware the Woman Beat This to My Doorstep by One Day. So I got to read that first because I absolutely adore Megan Abbott. But I adore Dwayne's work, too. So this will be right after that. I'm probably going to reference this book again before our discussion's over. And listen to our Lord Illusions episode because that's a really good one. That was a really yeah. good one. Go check it out. That's our November 2022 episode. So, yeah, that's... we. Had such a fantastic time with Dwayne. So yeah, please go check that out. And the other one I wanted to mention too is a podcast we've mentioned before, but it's Friends Till the End, which is the podcast hosted by Erica Henderson, who's a fabulous comic creator. She came on and talked about The Dream Child with us in our Nightmare on Elm Street series, but she hosts that alongside Benito Sereno and Matt Wilson. They're doing episode by episode reviews of the Chucky series, but now that they're waiting for Chucky season three to start every month they're reviewing a killer doll movie uh they just did dolly dearest i was been listening nice. to their dolly dearest episode on walks it's terrific they did the first puppet master nice megan i mentioned that because a it's a fabulous podcast and i really want, want folks to check it out all the hosts are great but also killer doll movies might come up in just a little bit i just wanted to throw those two plugs out because they will probably get referenced again when we get into the movie itself to one degree or another while we're plugging stuff, I just want to toss this one out there because it's kind of random. Uh, it sure. has nothing to do with anything, but I don't listen to a lot of other podcasts. I just haven't had much time lately. But one I always listen to is a Sixers podcast called You Know Ball, yeah, hosted by Trill Bro Dude and Sam Sheehan. It's just a fun basketball podcast. Hold, hold on, just just to clarify, did you say that one guy's last name is Bro Dude? 
It, his handle is Trill Bro Dude. It's his handle. Okay. <laughs> I was going to say, is that a family name? Uh, I don't, I think his real name is Porter, but I don't care. Bro Dude. Okay, cool. It's <laughs> a Twitter thing. But anyway, it's a good Sixers podcast. But if you listen, like right around now, this is coming out in, in the end of June. But if you go back and listen to the ones from May, progressively that, you know, have guests and friends on that are like Brooklyn fans and Sixers fans, obviously, and then Celtics fans. And just the level of disillusionment over the course of this month as these teams get knocked out by each other in the playoffs is just really entertaining to listen to if you're into, you know, <laughs> other people's misery and the humor that goes along with it. <laughs> and it, it, he actually, he has a Patreon, which I also support, that's, you know, a lot of fun. So half the podcast is public and half is Patreon. And, if you know, kick them a few bucks if you like it to listen to the Patreons because it's worth it. Because inevitably, like two minutes in, it's like, we're up behind the Patreon wall, right? And then... Gloves off. Just unload. So, anyway. <laughs> since we were talking about things like Hostel, the last couple of months on this podcast have just been this ongoing misery of disillusionment and black, soulless pain of sports. So I figured those two things went hand-to-hand. Anyway, moving on. No, 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 it's happening. <laughs> All right, so <laughs> the Darkling. Uh, okay, right at the top. If you haven't seen this, don't worry. We're gonna walk you through it, plot point by plot point. Because unless you are watching the USA Network in the year two thousand, which <laughs> Nick, it seems you did. So I did. Other than that, we're gonna walk you through it because this is pretty difficult to track down. Uh, as of us recording this. It's not streaming anywhere. There is a version, I think, on YouTube that is in German. And I don't mean subbed, I mean dubbed in German. Shit, I should have watched that one. <laughs> <laughs> there, there is an official, I think it's official, a DVD release that I picked up. So this is a Region 2 DVD? I think it's, I saw that on Amazon. You can get it. Prism Leisure. Is there, so this is what I picked up. So It's not surprising that it's hard to find because the writing and the quality, it, it's a low-budget, made-for-TV movie, and it feels like it. That being said, and all of that being completely true, the sheer acting power they wasted on this film is <laughs> mind-boggling! <laughs> Dear God! I mean, they got some heavy hitters here which i'll get into when we do production but it's like i'm watching this film going how the hell are these people giving me this (laughs) only one of them was a heavy hitter at the time i don't care i i do not care because i know who they become and i know what they're capable of and i got so you're mad for them in the past no (laughs) so I go ahead, Eric. <laughs> He's baiting me. I'm taking it. <laughs> well, so funnily enough, spinning out of that, like the the main heavy hitter, and on this DVD I've got right at the top, it says Oscar winner F. Murray Abraham. Right. But I mention it because on the back it says it refers to his character of Bruno Rubin, and then it says in parentheses F. Murray Abraham, Finding Forrester. This might be the first DVD release that doesn't say Amadeus. <laughs> It says Finding <laughs> Forrester. That's a fascinating choice. And this would have been like, man, F. Mur- we fucking love F. Murray Abraham. We talked about you know oh. him when we did our Moon Knight review because he voiced Conchu in that. But yeah, this was a bit of a, a down period for F. Murray. This was 
When was Star Trek Insurrection? So that was <laughs> first contact was ninety eight. Insurrection was Insurrection two thousand. I don't recall. I can't remember. So this would have been circa <laughs> Star Trek Insurrection. Insurrection was ninety eight. But Finding Forrester was in two thousand. Finding Forrester was the same year as this bullshit. So I just thought it was interesting because normally it's always F. Murray Abraham, Amadeus, because as it says at the top, Oscar winner F. Murray Abraham. That's what he won the Oscar for. He didn't win it for Finding Forrester. Nobody won it for... The only thing that won anything for Finding Forrester... Is the internet because of... The internet. Because of you're the man now. You're the man now, dog. (laughs) And F. Murray Abraham was the man now, dog, when that came out. So yeah, I guess I can get what you're saying there. But... He was kind of the only one. In fact, a couple of them, it was their first movie. There's a few folks who have pretty spare credits, and then there's some voice actors who have extensive credits, which we'll yeah. probably get yes. into. Yes! Yeah, fucking Bender. Yeah, so before we... We'll get into the crew stuff here in just a second. Just real quick, as far as... Why the Darkling? <laughs> why did I do this to you? <laughs> and like I said, I went the longest time before actually watching this, because literally, I was looking, I was like, all right, Doug Jones Day coming up. What other movies are there? And then I'm always drawn to the thing. It was like, what the fuck is this? Which is what happened with Night Angel. I said, Night Angel? I, I haven't heard of this movie. Pulled it up. That's also how Eric became friends with Nick and I. <laughs> <laughs> the, the fuck is this? What's up with these jabronis? Me peering over the cast register at border, squinting at you guys and tilting my head. For, What's going on back there? <laughs> so I, I saw this movie on Doug Jones IMDb for The Darkling and clicked on it. And I literally didn't even scroll down. Literally. <laughs> right at the top, I saw three names, which we'll get to in just a second because Nick's going to do the crew rundown. And they were three names I recognized. Well, sort of. And I said, what? And then said, I, I got to track this movie down. And I did. And then I watched it. And so imagine you're me, which I know is a horrifying thought, but just go, go with me for just a, just a second. Just <laughs> imagine you're me. You're one third of a horror movie podcast. You've done several Doug Jones horror movies. You have a pretty good idea when it comes to horror, the kind of roles that Doug Jones tends to get, you know, a lot of beastie, a lot of creature roles, a lot of makeup. Hell, his biggest role at the moment is, you know, wearing a shit ton of makeup is Saru on Star Trek Discovery. So, you know, a, a little bit of what Doug Jones's niche tends to be. So if you find a horror movie and you see Doug Jones is in it and you see Doug Jones is credited as Shadow Master. <laughs> you think, well, shit. Hell Yeah. <laughs> Hey, that sounds like it's like you think like, oh, is it like the Shadow King and the X-Men where they keep him in a fucking jar or some shit? Or it's like <laughs> that sounds oh, he's gonna be like the like the demon dude, maybe from Ouija, Origin of Evil. There's gotta be some nifty makeup involved. In Doug Jones, Shadow Master. Oh man. So bear that in mind when we get to what Doug Jones' role in this movie actually is. And what quote Shadow Master entails. Because I thought that sounds badass. It decidedly is not. Nope, nope, nope. I, I was telling my wife beforehand 
what movie we're doing. She's I I never heard of that. And I kind of gave her the basic plot. She said, that sounds kind of interesting. And Doug Jones is in this. Oh, I love Doug Jones. I'm like, well, she said, what does he play? And I was like, I had <laughs> a guy sort of. <laughs> so I had an event I went to this weekend. So I was short on time for prep. So I had to uh, sneak the movie in like Thursday night. And based on the timing, because I initially convinced my wife Hannah to watch it, and based on the timing, I'm like I can't do that, you know, because we can't put on the TV with the kids around, you know. And well, so I'm I'm just gonna. Well, I know, yeah. right? <laughs> I didn't know the time. Right, right, right. So I'll just you know put my headphones in and I'll sneak this in while they're up and about still, and then we can move forward with everything. And then <laughs> I got to the end of it, and I just looked there and said, "You didn't miss anything." <laughs> <laughs> I saved you in this one. We're all good. <laughs> Depends on how handsome you find Aiden Gian to be. Because. Fair. Quite. Yeah, he's very handsome. But it's it, like, if you Google this Not movie, as handsome as F. Murray Abraham in a turtleneck, though. Because God Oh, damn. the red turtle. We're going to get to the red <laughs> turtleneck. But no, like, if you Google this movie, there's not a ton out there. I there found shit. some stuff. I found there's a couple variety articles where, like, this was part of a push by the USA Network to do like multiple tv movies i read that same article the variety article there's two there's two variety ones there's one from 1999 there's one from 2000 yeah about their big push one of them's off because one of them says that the main character of the movie is a stockbroker yeah it says and the darkling about a stockbroker who sells his soul to the devil which is not this see the problem is is that that's the description of this film for someone who's only watched the first five ten minutes well, it's a, it's a description of that movie with Al Pacino and... Uh... Devil's Advocate? Oh, I love that movie. But you're right, that's more accurate of a description for that one. I guess he was a lawyer. He's a lawyer in that. In that but yeah, it's, it's even close. It's better than, than what Aiden Gein's... <laughs> well, what his his paid job is at the start of this movie and then what his paid job becomes. Neither of those are closer to stockbroker than lawyer. So. No. Nope. Yeah, no, no. If you like Aiden Gein, if you Google this, he's got a lot of fan pages... And there are stills from this movie on there. So if you find Aiden to be, you know, handsy, there's a lot of him being handsy in this film. Well, so let me let me throw this out there before we really get into it. I liked it. Did you? It was okay. I enjoyed this film. The, I did not hate it. It goes off the rails in the second half once... Okay, it's fucking spoilers. Right? Yeah, yeah. Once <laughs> F. Marie Abraham dies, the rest of the movie is just kind of okay. But all the stuff with F. Murray Abraham and Littlefinger, I just really enjoyed. I found the first half of this movie really engrossing and really kind of entertaining. And then the second half wasn't bad. Like, I liked the ending. Well, you know, trippy, but I liked kind of what they did with it. But it it was fun. It was, you know, silly TV fluff, but like, I didn't hate it. I kind of enjoyed it. Which felt like an upset. (laughs) <laughs> watching f murray abraham read the phone book would be entertaining to some yeah people. i that's a given for starters i mean so, I, I have a deep love of him so i enjoyed it when he's on screen absolutely and honestly i thought any scene with the actual darkling involved was a lot of fun i just liked i i like that kind of like poisonous dark tone that just kind of drools from oh man I, I, i'm a big fan of that and but we'll get more to that later but no, you're right. The movie has some fun bits, but it feels very much like the shadow of a good film. For sure. But like, I mean, just think about it. like the scene where, where F. Murray Abraham and Carcetti's eyes meet across a crowded party. 
Like, that's the most romantic thing we've seen on this podcast in a long time. <laughs> and it goes into super slow motion, complete with a gout of flame coming up behind Aiden Gian. Like, th- that was the best, I you know, meet cute at a party since Mortuary Collection. Like, this is the best eyes across a party since that. And nobody's dick explodes in this one, so, you know. I've been thinking about, like, experimenting with, with like, video stuff. Maybe, like, making, like, video ads for the pod. Like, little snippets that we could put on Instagram or something. I'll have to cut that scene and set it to find you in the fall. Uh, <laughs> mortuary Collection. I, I would love that so much. I might be the only one who loved it, but I'd love it. Alone in the summertime. Oh, sorry. I, I love that. But song. yeah, our, the meet cute ranks. This was this was pretty high for me. All right. I'm 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 glad you guys didn't hate it. <laughs> That's good. Good. Nope. Didn't hate it. Spent too much time trying to figure out the theme song, but if it was a real song or not. It's not. Yeah. Was I was so excited when you came in singing those lyrics because I know, if nothing else, Jake's going to be like me, and he had that goddamn song stuck in my head. Because, I, I did. <laughs> because they sing it. I meant to go back and count, but literally, no joke, I would bet money it's almost ten times. It's oh, yeah. so many That's times. That's on the low side. I, I would take the over on that. It fucking starts with F. Murray Abraham just singing it to himself in the car. <laughs> this song is sung by at least four. Four different characters in the course of the film. Maybe five. <laughs> and the Darkling alone sings it like five times. Near as you can tell, it's written by Daniel Kyog. Kyog? I don't know. It's K-E-O-U-G-H. Yeah, Danny Kyog. I don't know if he wrote... I know he sings it on the opening credits version. Yeah, I think he, he wrote it. Okay. Based on... Like, I couldn't find a lot, but I found some. And he was he was a songwriter and he was a performer at the time. He's interesting. He was an interesting dude. He was Lisa Marie Presley's first husband. From oh, nice. 88 to 94. Yeah. And he's all over the... If you Google him now, he's all over, like, tabloids and shit. Yeah. Because he was living with Lisa Marie Presley at the time of the, they separated back in 94. But following the passing of their son, they were living together for a while. And so he and their daughter, Riley Keough, who's a big actress who's been in... Mad Max Fury Road, The Lodge, Under the Silver Lake, Logan Lucky. So it's like her and her dad have been all over the tabloids from like December on. So he was he himself was in The Lodge. It's one I think it's his only acting credit. Yeah, I I haven't seen The Lodge yet, but I saw that entry on there. So it was a, a lot of people liked it. It didn't run to my tastes, but I can see why people enjoyed it. Okay, fair enough. See, I can say nice things when I don't like something. <laughs> What's the nice thing about Doug Jones Day episodes? We can always say nice things about Doug Jones. It's hard Doug to say Jones. bad things about Doug Jones. Doug Even Jones! If, uh, he has... Well, like I said, we'll, we'll get into what his part is later. But <laughs> but even then, he's, he's so lovable. So you mentioned Danny Keough. Nick, we want to do the production rundown? Let's do this. I'll explain my nonsensical reasons for subjecting us to this. Well, I'm glad you guys liked it. But yeah, for picking this random-ass movie that I had to buy from a Region 2 DVD of... I mean, the last movie we did was Spookies. I think people are used to this shit from us, right? <laughs> hey, that has a Vinegar Syndrome release. That's domestic. Uh... <laughs> That's Region A. But we did it because I used to be neighbors, you know? I mean, it's... <laughs> <laughs> we are discussing The Darkling from the year 2000. Directed by Po Chi Leong. Yes. Who also uh, worked on Immortality, The Jade Pendant, Baby Blues... 
Cabin by the Lake and Return to the Cabin by the Lake. And I'm sure there's something else in there you liked, isn't there? So when I saw Pochi Long's name, I said, wait, I know that name. That's the dude who directed Hong Kong 1941, which I unfat, which I, it's been years since I saw. Like, I saw. That was my first thought, too. <laughs> <laughs> You've almost certainly seen the box art for it because we had it at Borders. It was in the DVD section. But I saw it before that. Like, I, in my senior year of high school, I discovered the late era john woo from hong kong so i saw i had vhs tapes of hard boiled and the killer so i went when i got to college i went on a big chow Yun fat binge and hong kong 1941 was one of the movies i saw but po chi leung in the years since prior to seeing the darkling i i saw another movie he did in like he was a notable director in the early hong kong new wave and he did a thriller called he lives by night which is not great and is very problematic by today's standards, but has some interesting stuff visually. It's very interesting. And he did another movie that I saw just before this called The Island. That movie is actually, I, I thought was pretty good. If anyone's interested in like early 80s Hong Kong horror, movie's called The Island. And it's the short version is it's basically Deliverance meets Straw Dogs. That, oh my does not sound like a good time no (laughs) it's not as arduous as the plot summary implies but it does get rough at points but i did think it was a legitimately interesting film he did another movie that nick mentioned called baby blues which is more recent which i saw which is a killer doll movie from 2013 who fucking boy this movie God, just go watch the trailer for Baby Blues. It shows all the best parts of the film, but oh my fucking God, I can't wait to do that movie someday on this podcast. Oh my God. Every time you say the killer, I just want to fall to my knees and go, Mickey Mouse. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, and also randomly, I've been on a Choi Hawk kick lately, just in my free time. And... Watching early Choi Hawk films, like I watched Choi Hawk's movie Dangerous Encounters of the First Kind, Poochie Long is fucking in that. Nice. There's a bunch of cops in it, and like a lot of the cops are his director buddies. Poochie Long is one of them. And conversely, I think Choi Hawk is in some of Poochie Long's early films. So Poochie Long is is not a like enormous director of the Hong Kong New Wave, but he is a notable one. And yeah, then came to America like a year or two before The Darkling, did a movie called The Wisdom of Crocodiles which is a Jude Law vampire film, which I guess is actually somewhat known. It's also known by the name Immortality. Boy, I just stuck with the wisdom of crocodiles. God damn. I know, fun title, right? <laughs> and then he did Cabin by the Lake, and that one was, I think, another TV movie, and that's Judd Nelson is like a killer. But anyway, so when I saw Pochi Long, again, when I pulled up IMDb, I didn't need to scroll down, because right at the top were the director and the two writers Nick's about to get to, and I went, wait, fucking seriously? <laughs> So yeah, Pochi Long was one of them. I was like, wait, what? And as you said, this movie had two writers. The first was P.G. Sturges, who I believe only wrote The Host, or Host. Slash Virtual Obsession, which is apparently directed by Mick Garris, our resident Kool-Aid man. Oh, yeah. But no, P.G. Sturges is Preston Sturges Jr. He's the son of Preston Sturges. I was wait what? <laughs> so Preston Sturges Jr. did this, wrote this, and like you said, it's one of only two credits. Preston Sturges, I had never seen any Preston Sturges movies until a few years ago, maybe like seven, eight years ago. Friend of the Pod, Anna 
gave me the lady eve and i watched it and all of a sudden went right through his entire filmography and just some of my favorite comedies of all time i love preston sturges and i kind of wish i hadn't seen the pg sturges or preston sturges jr credit on imdb because in the movie when the opening credits come up he's credited as preston sturges Mm-hmm. That would have been confusing. I would have done a fucking spit take. And it's like, <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Was this some lost fucking Preston Sturges script? Like, after he did the beautiful blonde from Bashful Bend, he just said, fuck this comedy shit. I'm going to do a horror movie about some Faustian pact of a car mechanic. <laughs> what? It's a remake of Hail the Conquering Hero, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which brings us to our second writer. Dario Scardapane. Yes. Who's done mostly TV work, um, including the Punisher series, Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan, and, and Dominion. There it is. Yep. <laughs> I actually had a production note because I saw he wrote an episode of Dominion. I'm like, we're bringing it back to Legion, goddammit. I, I knew I had to. I knew it had to be said. <laughs> I was expecting you to bring up the fact, Jake, that he co-wrote Posse because he co-wrote it with Cy Richardson. That I didn't catch. I got caught up on dominion being there and like hey which brings us to our editor which is glenn farr who edited the right stuff commando wayward pines the serpent and the rainbow and runaway i i don't have any of that other shit mentioned all my thing says is he was (laughs) one of three editors on commandos and then there's a whole (laughs) line of exclamation points and then it continues and another line of it because (laughs) it's fucking commando (laughs) Commando is amazing. It is one of my favorite action films. For that one scene where like he comes home to the cabin, he notices something's up, and the one guy's like, if you want to see your daughter again, you'll listen to me. And he goes, no. No, and just shoots him dead on the spot, and then drives down a mountain. Not like the road back and forth, the down the mountain. <laughs> but I had to mention Runaway, because that lives rent-free in my head. There's just something about Tom Selleck versus Gene Simmons with, like, robot spiders that will never leave my mind. Oh my <laughs> god, really? Yeah, have you seen it? I haven't. It's Gene Simmons, he makes these robot assassin spiders that, like, blow up and, like, inject poison. He has these bullets that, like, mark a target and will go around corners to get them. And it's Tom Selleck as, like, a robot cop who's <laughs> coming this I have day. seen, I, I haven't seen the movie, I've seen the poster. Actually, it was Michael Crichton. Holy shit, that's right. I read about I this at some point years ago. I've never seen it, though. Kirstie Alley's in that, too. Holy yep. shit. We're going we're gonna to have to do that on an episode. I don't know if it's going to count as a horror movie, but we should at least get together and get Fucking some pizza and watch Gene it. Gene Simmons is the demon. That's got to <laughs> count, right? <laughs> you think I don't have 78,000 Kiss references? I can carry us through that entire episode. I can do that movie right now. Just making it up, reading the Wikipedia, and talking about Kiss. So, I, I actually have a note about Glenn Farr. Ooh. First of all, Wayward Pines, you had to throw that in the list? That pile of dog shit? If I had to watch it, you have to hear it. <laughs> I just don't like that that's in the same sentence as The Right Stuff. <laughs> right Stuff is a beautiful film. So The Right Stuff is one of my all-time favorite movies. Like Absolutely. We, we watched it as a kid. It made an indelible impression on me and my brother. I've always no Bucks, no Buck Rogers. Yeah, I've been quoting it forever. Nobody knows what the fuck I'm talking about most of the time. But, you know, it's Right Stuff. I was looking at that, and I didn't realize I had changed IMDB pages because I was going through the you know all the production people on this. And I'm sitting there, 
had to be for 20 fucking minutes. I had a whole bunch of notes like a lot of these people worked on the right stuff because I thought I was still on the page for the Darkling. (laughs) (laughs) 20 notes and I finally scrolled up, realized I was on the right stuff and just went and I had all these clever notes about, you know, connections and I just deleted the whole goddamn felt like an idiot. (laughs) They originally approached Scott Glenn for the in-game part and when he turned him down, they said, oh, shit. (laughs) They just leave this part to the professionals, Jake. <laughs> Clearly, I'm no good at it. Because I was sitting there, like, literally half an hour. It's like, this is really weird how connected to the right stuff this is. Like, all of these people the right worked stuff. on it. It's been a long week. Yes. Which brings us to our costume designer, who also worked on Castle Rock, mm-hmm. Grimm, Scream 2, and Firestarter 2 Rekindled. Yes. Which comes up a lot. <laughs> also the guest, the Adam Wingard film, and, and Simon Barron wrote it uh, with Dan Stevens, the guest. 46 episodes of Breaking Bad. And yep. also, again, because Jake and I are comic nuts, Kathleen DeTore was the costume designer on the pilot of Vertigo's Scout when they were tried to adapt it into an FX series, but it didn't end up going to series. Huh. But they did make a pilot of it, the Jason Aaron series for Vertigo. Yeah, I remember Scalp. I never read it, but I remember it. That's interesting. Yeah. I didn't even know they made a pilot, or maybe just I just a pilot. Yeah, didn't but... end up going to series, but yeah. Huh. So yeah, she has some fun credits. So of course, I was fascinated by the uh, casting choices here, so I had to go into the casting uh, directors or four of them. So we had Erica Arvold, who did casting for They Them, Harriet, and Lincoln. Then we have casting by Jeff Johnson, who worked on Yellowstone. Hereditary. Oh, shit. Haunt. John Carter. High School Musical. And Firestarter 2 Rekindled. (laughs) Randomly one of those is Canadian. (laughs) Haunt is Canadian, isn't it? I'm almost certain. I thought it was Scottish. Haunt? I've seen the poster for Haunt. I haven't actually seen it, so I don't know. The poster has almost nothing to do with the movie. I'm just (laughs) glad we've got two connections to Firestarter 2 Rekindled. That's that's fucking great. (laughs) Well, I'm not done yet. Oh, <laughs> I must be thinking of a different movie, but there was. That's uh, gonna bother me now. Are you thinking Hellfest or Bloodfest? Which one? Shut up. <laughs> oh, I'm gonna get to that too. <laughs> <laughs> so you make one mistake. By... <laughs> <laughs> casting also by Mia Levinson, who worked on House of Wax, George of the Jungle, and Dragon: The Bruce Lee Story. Wow. And finally, I have casting by Katrin uh, McGregor. Who worked on Halloween 5, Revenge of Michael Myers, The White Sheep, and Firestarter 2, The Rekindled. <laughs> <laughs> Seems like a theme. Nick, I'm going to be honest, like because I put together like, like some notes on cast and crew just for bits yeah. and pieces. Uh, and I had the same thought. I was like, oh, the cast, maybe I'll look at the casting. And I saw there were four casting. I said, Nick got this. So, <laughs> <laughs> so thanks for falling on that sword. I was like, I had something. You're like, welcome. I got enough. I'm not going through four people's on TV. <laughs> so that's awesome. Haunter. Haunter is what I'm thinking of. Oh, okay. Oh, that makes a lot more sense now. <laughs> Cinematography was by Stephen M. Katz, uh-huh. who worked on The Blues Brothers. God bless. Gods and Monsters. I'll Always Know What You Did Last Summer. Return to Cabin by the Lake. The Kentucky Fried Movie. And Nice Girls Don't Explode. Which lives rent-free in my head. <laughs> I've seen that movie. I've shown it to Hannah. It's amazing. <laughs> I I will say one Nick left out. Just because 
there might be some people listening to this who, who would want me to mention this. It's a movie I had heard of for years and hadn't seen it until recently, to my shame, but now I've seen it. Messiah of Evil. Holy shit, we need to do that movie at some point. Really? Uh, yes. Uh, it's by... Oh, God, I'm, I'm doing off the top of my head. It's William Hoyk and Gloria Katz. Apologies if I'm messing their names up. Most folks would know them as either the writer-directors of Howard the Duck nice. or the writers of American Graffiti. But oh, nice. They went to school with, I believe they were at the same school as you know George Lucas, Coppola, all those folks. This was a, a horror movie they did. I guess it's very divisive. I fucking loved it. I and so I Nick I think you would really enjoy it. I'm excited. We should do it. Music by Frankie Blue, who also worked on Prom Night, I Kissed a Vampire, Frankenhood, Return to Cabin by the Lake, comes up a lot. Yep. And Dark Prince, The True Story of Dracula. The project manager for special makeup effects was Jessica Hooper. Ooh, that's a deep cut. <laughs> Say, that's that's a new it. title for you. I busted that one out before. <laughs> <laughs> well, I felt this movie required two individuals. You know, one for the special makeup effects and one for the animatronics. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> <laughs> the special makeup effects, though, uh, was Jessica Hubner, who worked on Seed of Chucky, ah. Bones, Beneath Loch Ness, Scary Movie 2, Vampire in Brooklyn, The Addams Family, and Star Crystal. Star Crystal! <laughs> I thought you liked that. Alright, now this is where I'm gonna gush a bit. Alright. So, real so, quick, before you get started, back in our Hocus Pocus episode, there's a certain someone we went over, and I mentioned that there was connections between this person and what we were probably going to do for Doug Jones Day. This is who I was referring to. Nice. Before we get into this, I've got a deep cut on the production. Two. What, what, what? Catering was done by the Pig Boys. The Pig, the Pig Boys, Boys Inc. is Utah's premier mobile catering service. Just thought I'd throw that out there. They're no longer in business. I looked them up. So now we've got the community connection and the catering connection. Okay. Oh, we'll do the community connection. You got two connection bits you got to bit. do. <laughs> well, no, I was watching the credits and it's catering by the Pig Boys. And I'm like, well, shit, I got to look that up. <laughs> we'll talk about why I knew it was filmed in Utah a little bit later. The animatronic effects designer and supervisor is Tony Gardner. And hats off to him, because I'm about to rant on what this man has worked on. We have Cult of, Curse of, and Seed of Chucky, Hocus Pocus 1 and 2, Zombieland 1 and 2, They Them, Old, Freaky, Hellfest, nice. The Mist, Clown, Movie 43. Wait, now Hellfest is the good one, right? <laughs> I don't even remember. That's how much we we've you destroyed so the names. I don't the names don't have meaning anymore. <laughs> <laughs> While you figure that out, he also worked on Bones, Scary Movie Two, Stir of Echoes, Go, which I had to mention because it's a great film, Life Form, The Craft, Lord of Illusions, Ghost in the Machine, Adam's Family One and Two, Army of Darkness, and Evil Dead Two, Sleepwalkers. Mom and Dad Save the World. If you haven't seen it, check it out. Dark Man, Swamp Thing, Rockula, Nightbreed, 1988's The Blob, Lost Boys, Harry and the Hendersons, Aliens, Return of the Living Dead, Cast a Deadly Spell, one of my favorites, Three Amigos, My Science Project, Cocoon, and The Thriller Video. 
My, I, I'm in love with this man. My heart beats so fast. Yes, Tony Gardner of Alterian Studios. His credits are extensive. I, I will mention, since you brought up Return of the Living Dead, if you go to the official Return of the Living Dead site, I don't have the link in front of me. We'll, we'll post it on our social media. They're getting ready to start selling a series of prints of the Tar Man that Tony Gardner is signing. I think there's going to be a run of a hundred of them. And I'm probably going to pick one up for our pod because that's super fucking cool to have Tony Gardner sign a friend of the Tar Man. So, yep. Yep. Tony Gardner, like I mentioned in the Hocus Pocus app, worked with Doug Jones on a lot of stuff. Hocus Pocus 1 and 2, Tank Girl, Warriors of Virtue, a bunch of stuff. But Nick mentioned Seed of Chucky. He took over as the animatronic person for the Chucky franchise, beginning with Seed of Chucky. Before that, it was Kevin Yeager, which is why I threw out Friends Till the End, the Chucky podcast, as Tony Gardner has become very closely tied to the Chucky franchise. And it's particularly interesting when you see what the Darkling is in this movie, which we'll get to. I think when I first saw this, I like had forgotten the Tony Gardner connection because it had been so long since the Hocus Pocus episode. And when I saw it, I said, huh, that reminds me of, and then I looked it up and said, that's why. Okay. Well, we'll get into more detail with it later, but honestly, this film is three villains vying for attention. (laughs) <laughs> pretty much yes yeah we'll talk more about that later <laughs> one other a chucky related side note real quick so tony gardner's daughter kira i believe it's pronounced kira apologies if if i'm misremembering she just put out a documentary called living with chucky and it's i think it's it might be on Screenbox. if nothing else it's available for rent and it's a documentary about as the title implies, the fact that as she was growing up, her dad started working on the Chucky franchise. And it's about the first half of it is kind of just like a brief overview of the Chucky series as a whole, touches on all the films. And then the back half of the documentary is this really sweet examination of, A, it's an examination of kind of the realities of trying to manage a family and working in film, like Tony's talking about you know, all this stuff, trying to be a dad, but also he has to, you know, going out to do all these movies, all the time you sink into effects work. But it's also about the found family aspect of the Chucky franchise that it's been so consistent with a lot of the people who've worked on it and the dynamics between them. And like when they interview Brad Dourif, they interview both Brad Dourif and his daughter, Fiona, who of course now is a major part of the franchise. She's amazing. It's it's a I thought it was a really, really good documentary. The back half of it in particular is so sweet. I, I, I really, really enjoyed it. So I would highly encourage folks, if you haven't seen it yet, check out the Living with Chucky documentary. And we'll probably be talking about Kyra Gardner before too long, because Kyra Gardner also has a story in an upcoming anthology called Haunted Reels. Yeah, we'll probably be talking about before too long. So we just might. So All right. Thank you for the. Well, I got more. Oh, oh, go go ahead. Produced and distributed by USA Network, oh, yes, yes. who also actually surprisingly worked on Terminator 1 and 2, The Evil Dead, Nightmare on Elm Street, The Chucky Series, Tremors, and Army of Darkness. Who knew? So this seems like a good time for our community connection. It's the Pig Boys, right? <laughs> I wish, man. <laughs> That'd have been so good. No, uh, it's actually I did th- through two people because it's fairly, you know, we I have done F. Murray Abraham before because he was on Mythic Quest with Danny Pudi, who, of course, was Abed on Community. It is worth noting he was also on 13 Ghosts, Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities, Blood Monkey, 
Mimic and Moon Knight. Blood Monkey has also come up on my list of movies I looked at for this pod. I would love to do his episode of Cabinet of Curiosities, too. I love that episode. We're going to have a monkey episode, episode and it's going to be glorious. Yeah. I, I was looking at Link today. I was looking. I was watching something on another movie related to Link, and I was like, hey, we need to get to Link. I've got the Blu-ray, so I'm ready whenever we get to it. Monkey shines. But here's the other connections. So John DiMaggio, who voiced Bender, of course, was also on Mythic Quest with Danny Pudi. So they both count. Awesome. Yeah, John DiMaggio gets around. He's was, he's in the most recent Super Mario Brothers movie, yeah. and I loved him in the Spawn animated series. Dude is amazing. And the only other one I because I, I it was like there has to be some sort of Game of Thrones connection, right? It's got to be, you know, because of course Aiden Gillen was Littlefinger on on Game of Thrones. He was also in Queer as Folk and the Maze Runner series. And go on, give it to me. The Wire. Season three, Carkenny! Come on, 2004! <laughs> I never watched The Wire. <laughs> Jake's face. <laughs> I know. I feel like, like I just told him I kicked his favorite pet. Look, if you slow it down, Nick, you can see the exact moment Jake's heart broke in half. And now. How is it? Just, but, but. I, I have other priorities, man. Like, I just finished watching Ted Lasso, and oh, God, that was amazing. But, okay. All right. Anyway, so Martin Starr was very briefly <laughs> in Game of Thrones. He was an ironborn soldier as kind of an extra. Martin Starr, of course, played Professor Clagoras in the season three, episode two, Geography of Global Conflict. Aha, uh-huh, so, yeah. So there's several, you know, one-off connections in this. But I had to go through Game of Thrones just to see, you know, what was there. But yeah, John DiMaggio and Ephraim Abraham, you know, starring alongside Danny Pudi, who is the Community Connection Prime, and then we have the secondary one. <laughs> Since we're tossing out John DiMaggio, and we'll get more into He's him. He's probably the on the wire, too, but Nick wouldn't fucking know. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, so John DiMaggio is the primary voice of the Darkling in this movie. But when the Darkling speaks, the Darkling sometimes speaks in multiple voices at once. Yep. And sometimes in, in the voices of some of the main characters. But there is another main voice that's a more childlike voice. Now, there's a couple other voice actors who were listed on the credits. But the person who is contributing this more childlike voice for the Darkling who appears to be an actor named Kath Susie. And I mention this because Kath Susie was the voice of Phil and Lil on Rugrats. And nice. the voice... That's used in this movie. Sounds exactly like the Phil and Lil voice from Rugrats. And so it's like, yep, that sounds like it's Kath Susie. <laughs> Kath Susie has been a voice actor since the early 80s, if not earlier. She was Janine in The Real Ghostbusters. Nice. She was Minks in Gem. Nice. Uh, there was that pilot, Pride of the X-Men from way back when, that never went to series. She was Kitty Pride in that. No shit. Yep. Do you know how much I loved that cartoon? Pride of the X-Men or Jim? Pride of the X-Men. I don't know what the fuck Jim is. Pride of the what? X-Men. What? What the hell? Nick, How do you not Nick, know you, Jim? No, you don't get to do this. You haven't seen the Jim? wire. He can yell Jim? at me. You can't, Nick. She's outrageous. She's, She's truly, 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 truly outrageous. Jim. Jim. Jim is my name. They're comics oh. about Jim, man. They're good ones. Yeah, God. God. What is wrong with you? I thought you said Jim. J-I-M. Jim. J-E-M. You can understand my mistake. Of course I know, Chip. (laughs) Look, Shasta listens to this podcast, so I'm going to personally point out to Shasta, yes, I know Jim and the holograms. 
I thought it was some fucking Nickelodeon thing called Jim. How the hell would I know? Or some made-up fucking dinosaur cartoon. <sighs> X-Men, X-Men, this is the day. That was the theme song. It was awesome. Coming your way. I All right, little aside, because when the fuck <laughs> else am I going to ever do? That originally aired, unannounced, uh, on a Sunday morning cartoon. Sunday morning, not even Saturday morning. Sunday morning, when they showed Spider-Man and his amazing friends. This would have been probably when I was in seventh grade. And I was up watching it. And they said, next up, Pride of the X-Men. And I have never in my life moved so fast to get a videotape into the VCR <laughs> to tape this. Because I, we didn't know what it was. We didn't know it was coming. And all of a sudden, there it was, like a miracle, like a star over Bethlehem was an X-Men cartoon. And it was like one of the... For 25 Glorious Minutes, looked good, too, for the time. It looked good. Wolverine was Australian for some reason. And I I have been quoting it forever because nobody moves the blob is from that. And I say that to my cats all the time. (laughs) And they don't know what I'm talking about. Or maybe they do. It's hard to tell with cats, but... Yeah, so that, like, the two fastest I have ever moved in my life was putting that DVD in, and then when a dolphin surfaced in front of me down in, in North Carolina, and I thought it was a shark, and I don't remember, I don't remember getting from the way out in the water to the beach. I just know that it was here, and then it was there. It was the same thing when the Pride of the X-Men said, no, up next. So anyway, nothing to do with anything, but holy shit. Jake? 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 Jake, did the... Did the Pride of the X-Men thing make you happy? It it did, yes. Okay, good, good, good. Because, one to go. Kat Susie, who voice actor Shaw was just talking about, um, was the voice of n- not one, but two, Casey and Heather, from 50, five, five, zero, 50 episodes of Denver the Motherfucking Dinosaur! <laughs> Nope. Yes! 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 That cartoon was real. It was real. It was real. This is what we call a shared hallucination. No, 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 no. Possibly gaslighting. I was so hoping she was going to be in the Mighty Orbots too, but God damn it, she wasn't on yes! there. I was so desperately hoping Nobody you'd see was. the Mighty <laughs> Two characters recurring every episode. Mm-hmm. Oh my god. We argue about cartoons a lot on this podcast for horror movies. <laughs> like I've said before. Uh, straight white men arguing about cartoons. Where else on the internet? <laughs> <laughs> Alright. Why don't I just get through the other actors' past experiences real quick? Sure. So we have uh, Charlotte Avenel, who is the photographer girlfriend in this. She's played by Lisa Lindy. From uh, Pacific Blue and about 170 episodes of Days of Our Lives. This was her first movie. Yep. Then we have uh, Marla Obold, the wife. She's played by Nina, I apologize for pronunciation, Simasco, who I have a special place in my heart for. I've always had a little crush for. Uh, she's from Airheads, The Hatred, The Haunting of Molly Hartley, Tales from the Crypt, and Wild Orchid 2, which I saw when I was 13. Oh, was that would do it. And that is that is too young to watch that movie. Yeah, that would do it. That would do it. <laughs> or is it just the right age? <laughs> Nick learned some stuff that day. <laughs> God damn. I, actually, I, I didn't look up her IMDb, so it's, I didn't know how extensive her IMDb was. I've seen most of those movies, so okay. I, I, I've always loved her. 
I bet. Especially if you saw it at 13. <laughs> Ask me about risky business sometime. And why I like trains. We we also have Casey the daughter. <laughs> Casey the daughter is played by Sky McCole Bartusiak from Storm of the Century. Firestarter 2 Rekindled. <laughs> <laughs> Told you bring it around So we're going to do Firestarter 2 re- Rekindled. And he's just going to go we through and just keep talking point. about the Darkling. <laughs> Boogeyman, which I really like the ending on, but I think we talked about that. And Lost. It's a new one coming out. I think it's separate, though. That one they keep saying is like inspired by Stephen King, and I don't remember the first Boogeyman doing that. Yeah, so. it's from the, the Night Shift story, I think. But, you, you know, the appropriate thing, I'll, I'll throw this out there real quick, is I haven't seen Firestarter or ah! Firestarter 2 Rekindled or the new ones. Did you at least see the Prodigy video? But I, I, I really want to see Firestarter. You know why? Because it's directed by Mark Lester, who directed the greatest movie of all time, which is Commando. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Firestarter, if we ever do a Stephen King thing, telling you right now what my pick is. That's fair. That's fair. All right. And real quick, we have two more. Baron, the voodoo practitioner, who is played by Todd Bridges. You might know from Different Strokes, Monsters on Main Street, and The Damned. And of course, the man, the myth, the legend, playing the shadows in this, is Doug fucking Jones. And what else has he been in? From Hocus Pocus 1 and 2, Ouija, The Origin of Evil, Absentia, Legion, Doom, and Night Angel. Yay. You know, he's getting an action figure. The Toonie Terrors that NECA puts out. N E C A, NECA, and I C A, something like that. Uh, and they're putting out um, his Hocus Pocus character, whose name just shot out of my head like a cannon. Billy Butchers, yeah. So you too can own a Doug Jones action figure. Too. Oh, that's awesome. We'll have to get one. As well you should. Yeah, that's fabulous. And yeah, it's, again... We love Doug Jones here. You know, seems like everyone who's worked with him has glowing things to say about him. Worth noting, again, when we get to what his role is in this movie, keep in mind, I don't know how he got his name in the opening titles of this movie, and he gets credit over Todd Bridges. Yeah. (laughs) Just bear that in mind when we get to what Doug Jones' role in this movie is. It's not bad, but you'll understand when we get to what, again, Shadow Master really entails. Yeah. Alrighty. So I guess we ought to talk about the actual movie, maybe. <laughs> just a little bit. Just a little bit. I've got kind of a plot walkthrough, and so yeah, just because folks haven't seen this. And Randy, friend of the pod, will be very happy. Yeah, Randy, you don't need to track down a Region 2 DVD that's in PAL format instead of NTSC. He'll track it down beforehand, get to this part in the podcast, and be like, God damn it! <laughs> I'm not sure Randy has ever watched anything we do. Fred, Fred of the podcast, always does, though, so he might need a, he might need a borrow. Oh, yeah, I'll, I'll hook you up, Fred. <laughs> so, yeah, again, that's why we're doing this, really, is this one's actually tricky to, to kind of nail down, at least as of this recording. Who knows if that'll change later, but I guess what we'll toss out at the top, like I said, you guys liked it, you know, to varying degrees. Yeah, I thought it was fun. And what I'll say is, like, I don't know if I would recommend anyone go looking for it. No, no. But if you're like me, and you see Pochi Long, Dario Scarpadane, and Preston Sturgis's fucking kid did a movie together, (laughs) and you You go, holy shit, like, like, yeah, you gotta, so. 
I mean, I, I'm never going to say don't watch a movie with F. Murray Abraham in it, so. Right. No, no, he's got some fun, well, especially when we get to the turtleneck, but first he's first. He's so fun in this. <laughs> he's not quite the first thing we see in this movie. He's almost the first thing we see. The first thing we see is a montage of purple curtains. Get used to seeing these fucking curtains. <laughs> <laughs> and get used to hearing the song that plays over the top, which yeah. I assume is just called The Visitor. Near as I could find, it's just called The Visitor. When it starts, it's being sung by Danny Keough, and it's just playing, you know, I'm a visitor, I take you for a ride. If you're well, I'll probably gonna end up singing that fucking thing, because again, it, it's incessant. It's a significant recurring thing throughout the movie. But when it starts, it's non-diegetic. It's just being sung over the opening, you know, shots of these purple curtains. And then we transition to F. Murray Abraham, who we'll soon find out is playing a character called Bruno Rubin. And all of a sudden the song becomes diegetic because now F. Murray Abraham is singing it, just yep. driving along in a Hummer. You know, it made me think of the stand because in the original TV series, one of the main characters wrote a song called baby, let me be your man. And various characters sing that periodically, yep. you know, in the background. And there's this, this scene where you're introduced to one of the characters he's painting on the bridge and he's singing it and for whatever reason. I flash back to that when, you know, F. Murray Abraham is driving up singing it. So, like, we started on a good solid foot. The the opening kind of threw me a bit, because while he's singing, he has these sores all over his face. Yes. Well, it, it's not like in the first shot, or at least in the very first shot of him. It really, it could be because it's shot through a car windshield, the, yes. the front shot. And so it's kind of hard, to, but it doesn't look like they're there then. But then it cuts to a shot of him reflected in the rearview mirror. And then when it cuts to the front shot, you can see him. And yeah, he has these like sores and kind of has like this crusty look to his face. I point that out because mirror imagery is kind of a big thing in this film that they go back to a lot in a very obvious way too, when we get to the darkling itself, but also like any time in this film that they can stage a shot where someone is reflected, they do. I mean, complete to the point there's an auto show at one point, and the auto show starts with an extreme close-up on a highly polished car door that you could see the characters reflected in before it pulls back. So, like, any mirror thing they can do in this film, they do. And so, yeah, there's Bruno Rubin. We'll find out more about him in just a second. When we first see him, he's just jamming out to this song. Instead, we then cut out to a junkyard. We're introduced to Aiden Gein's character, Jeff Obold. He's just kind of fiddling around in this junkyard with his daughter, Casey. Casey's running around collecting hood ornaments and while he's apparently just scavenging car parts. And he's like, oh, yeah, just keep playing. She's trying to collect like one of each, you know, auto brand or whatever. And he's like, all right, just, just give me a second. I, I got one more part to get, honey. And then she spies a baby doll, this you know, dusty, dirty baby doll that is wedged in the frame inside the window, like seal of a derelict car, which is worth noting for two reasons. One is. The imagery of her playing with a baby doll or the image of a baby-like figure is about to become very important to this movie. Yep. And it's also worth noting for the fact that this vehicle is stored, as all cars are stored in auto lots, perfectly perpendicular <laughs> to the ground. <laughs> it is at a 90-degree angle. It is on its goddamn nose. <laughs> and and clearly up. it must have been just put there because it is so goddamn precarious <laughs> that a small no. child... Could upset it that she says, ooh, doll, pulls it out, and that's enough 
for a Final Destination movie to get going <laughs> as this thing starts creaking along. And it starts to topple over. And her dad, played by Aiden Gian, sees this car starting to topple, gets her out of the way. And then we get a, a tracking shot, which again, this, from a visual standpoint, in some ways the movie's pretty lackluster, but in other ways, in terms of how they frame it and some of the shot composition, it's actually surprisingly ambitious or interesting for a 2000s USA TV movie because we get a pretty significant crane shot here. The shot cranes up from them in the junkyard to us seeing the Hummer approaching, which is being driven by Bruno Rubin, the F. Murray Abraham character. And then the crane shot follows the Hummer down to an adjacent part of the lot where we meet the junkyard's proprietor, who's named Sam. Bruno Rubin pulls up in this Hummer, gets out, and the owner is very excited to show Bruno this thing he got, you know, this very special piece. And Bruno says, you know what I'm looking for, right? Pull it up, and it's the wreckage of a 1969 Ferrari Dino. Get used to a lot of car jargon in this movie. (laughs) I don't know if it was Dario Scarpadine or if it was Preston Sturgis, but someone working on this was a gearhead and had a thing for cars. So, and it's this extremely, I guess, you know, rare Ferrari from 19... It's it's an actual car model, the Ferrari Dino. But Ruben says, no, 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 this isn't just any Ferrari Dino. This is the Paolo Buscaro Dino, or just the Buscaro Dino. He says it was driven by Paolo Buscaro, and it's the first vehicle to ever win the Triple Crown of Talladega, Sebring, and Le Mans. It's worth pointing out that that's nonsense. Oh, yeah, none of this happened, (sighs) yeah. Yeah, none of this is real, but... It's kind of vaguely like when they describe. So what happens is, of course, there's a tragic incident with the car, which becomes a recurring thing with some other vehicles we'll get to in the film. But in particular, what happened was the the guy took a turn too sharp and crashed into the crowd. Three members of the crowd died instantly. And then but F. Marie Abraham says, oh, but Buscaro wasn't so lucky because apparently Buscaro got Nicky Lauded, who's an actual person who was stuck for anyone who's seen the movie Rush, the Ron Howard movie. Daniel Brühl plays the character of real-life person Nikki Lauda, who was trapped in the wreckage of a car and stuck and was on fire, breathing in flames and smoke for a significant period of time, and miraculously survived. So wow. it seems like that's kind of the inspiration for Buscaro, you know, in this movie. Except Buscaro, in this case, died. He said he hung in for a week, and then he ended up dying. So Sam says, yeah, well, that, that sounds nice, but no, no, this isn't that car. I already checked. And Bruno says, oh, no, 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 my friend, you did check. The numbers did match. And this is the Buscaro Dino. And plies Sam with two legitimate $50 bills and a shitload of obviously fake ones. But a sandwich <laughs> with two <laughs> They nearly look like Monopoly money in the middle. <laughs> they really do. So that's our intro to, to the Bruno Rubin character, who the full extent of what he does is somewhat nebulous. But at least one wing of his business model being his obsession with cars, with rare cars, fixing them up, becomes a, a running motif and becomes the Aiden character, Jeff's intro to the film. We cut back to Jeff's home. We meet his wife, Marla, who Nick mentioned, played by Nina Shemasco. Of course, we have to have it for our, our Faustian. The whole movie's predicated on Faustian bargain sort of shit. And you know, we have to have the person starting from a place of desperation. So he's fretting over bills. Well, Marla's fretting over bills. Jeff's just arguing with a debt collector over the phone. Casey asks her dad, you know, do cars bleed as, as he's getting ready to go to work? And Jeff replies, no, nah, they just get banged up and bruised a bit, which is appropriate for this movie because it's a made for TV horror movie. And there's basically no blood in it except for one scene. So 
get a bit just establishing that he's in kind of a destitute situation, you know, extreme financial situation, but has a loving family. Wife gives him a kiss on the cheek as he goes off to his job at a Cajun restaurant. And she reminds him, she says, you're a good man. And don't let anybody tell you different, which is to show she's supportive. But it's weird when you find out immediately after that his job is as a chef in a Cajun restaurant, <laughs> that you're talking somebody <laughs> up and says, remember, you're a good man. Is that the pick me up for chef is like some customer like, hey, my gumbo only had two shrimp with it. I bet the chef is a terrible person who doesn't love his mother. You, you never call somebody <laughs> a degenerate over a bad po' boy? Come on. Man. I guess. Hey, I think it's just indicative of like how wait staff and cooks and retail are treated in this society. Yes, that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> it's just weird. It's like, it's like, no one had to hype me up at my retail job. Remember, you're a good person. <laughs> I fucking needed it. I, I did it to myself. The people were mean, man. So then we cut to Jeff working at this Cajun restaurant, cooking shrimp with the force because he gets a handful of Cajun seasoning and just thinks on it real hard. This is foreshadowing something that comes later about going with feeling and whatnot, but it's he's just standing there gripping this thing. Striking up banner with his boss and bosses. Oh, we got a big group coming in tonight. And of course, the group is Bruno Rubin, the F. Murray Abraham character. And an odd entourage of five other people. Cut. Rubin's now enjoying his meal. The proprietor comes up. Because again, Bruno Rubin, the F. Murray Abraham character, all we know is he's a big deal. He's rich. And you know, we don't know the full extent of it. Rubin strikes up conversation with the owner. Say, hey, who's 69 GTR car is that out back? The owner says, oh, no, that's not mine. That's That's Jeff. And at which point, like Jake mentioned earlier, we get this super slow motion head swivel from Abraham <laughs> as Freddy's nightmare sound effects ensue <laughs> as Aiden Gian and F. Murray Abraham lock eyes from across the room. And Bruno's like, oh, is your car? Oh, can, we, can we go take a look at it? Because of the two of them conversing over you know, Jeff's car, Bruno's like, oh, you really know your shit. I can tell you weren't always a cook. And Jeff says, no, 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 I used to be a mechanic. I was tired of watching rich people fuck up their cars. But you know, yeah, and Bruno said, oh, yeah, well, come and see my collection sometime. Just kind of walks off. Jeff is then helping his boss close up shop, and his boss is like, hey, you know, that Bruno Rubin guy's into some weird occult shit. Just because apparently <laughs> Bruno is in that Call of Cthulhu thing when you hit a certain tax bracket and you just decide, hey, it's time to start dabbling in the arcane, you know? <laughs> <laughs> what do you get the man who has everything? Look, when you don't have to worry about money anymore. <laughs> Your brain starts to go in weird directions. It's better the occult than, I don't know, buying Twitter or something. <laughs> and, well, the specific phrase they go back to, too, is they, they say he consults with dark forces. Which, remember that phrase, because it comes back later, <laughs> specifically. The, the consults with dark forces. So, uh, that's Jeff hanging up. So, then we cut to Bruno's palatial state. Again, he's loaded. And we see he has a massive altar-ish setup with... Christian iconography, but iconography seemingly from all kinds of different world religions. Big yep. ass candelabras, because of course. And he's got an old timey skeleton key that he uses to enter a room. Massive fucking room with something in the center. Like there's a stairwell that goes down the side of this room. It's like a two story almost, like open airspace. Yep. There is something surrounded by this ring of curtains. It's the purple curtains we sing in the open. It's one of them 70s conversation pits. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and as he goes down, we hear the dulcet tones of John DiMaggio uh. just <laughs> singing along. 
I'm a visitor. I'll take you for a ride. And so you, you're going to hear the fuck out of this fucking song for the movie's done. So this mysterious figure is the titular Darkling. We don't see it yet, but we hear it because Reno approaches it and talks to it. And again, like we did at the opening, the Darkling speaks in this very mellow voice of John DiMaggio. He kind of has some, goes up and down pitches at points. But most of the time, it's just like this. It's the smooth sound of the 70s. <laughs> it's like the jazz version of brain damage. <laughs> <laughs> Playing all the hits. Now here's John Denver's Sunshine on My Shoulder. Also, he tells his first line to Reuben, aside from when he's singing, but Reuben approaches and, and, the, and the Darkling's first line is, You were gone so long. You know how I hate that. Which is very bizarre later when the Darkling is able to induce hallucinations in somebody in Hong Kong. Yep. <laughs> it's like, what the fuck do you care where he is? So, but anyway. It's reach and its power is surprisingly massive considering what its limitations supposedly are. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they really thought out the uh, the structure nope. of this thing and the canon here. It. Oh my god. That, that does bug me a bit, because, like, I'll wait till we get to it. I'm, I, I want to skip ahead. I'm, I'm gonna <laughs> oh, I have a, a little list about what exactly the Darkling's power set is. <laughs> which oh, is God. It's interesting. And Ruben responds is like, oh, yeah, sorry I was away, but it can't be helped. I met somebody tonight, somebody you'd like. And it's also, it's like, kind of peculiar. What about that conversation? We find out later, it's basically that there was kind of this element of envy that, that Bruno kind of sensed in Jeff, and also that he's, you know, has some semblance of passion and principles, but it's, it's, you know, this whole setup is gets rather peculiar as we get into it. Smash cut to a quote-unquote auto show, which is basically three cars in a parking lot and a man who's with an oversized whiskey flask offering sips to anyone walking by for a dollar. Oh, one sip for a dollar. Not pouring in a cup, but drink from the fucking flask. Which Marla does, our protagonist's wife. Just was like, hell yeah, I'll do that for a dollar. <laughs> Probably how she met her husband. She's like, oh man, I miss this. I miss the, you know, the auto lifestyle of people smelling like grease, dirt under their fingernails. She starts making out with Jeff when Jeff is distracted by this 1970 Plymouth Superbird, which if you haven't seen this car before, it, the spoiler on this thing is fucking massive. It wants to take off. It's Yeah, <laughs> it's it's his dream car. It, it, this is a legit vehicle. And you see it three times. They show the same shot of it pulling up three times. I mentioned that because... The repetition of threes is something that also comes up a few times. Where it's like, nope, mm. I guess it's the rule of threes, except it's not comedy. It's vague mystery tension in this case. It's the Trinity. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of religious stuff coming. That's I that. say it's probably we had two hours plus ads to fill is why you see a lot of things <laughs> three times. <It> <laughs> we can only put so many silk stockings ads in here. We got to put something else <laughs> Jeff is like, holy shit, my dream car. Immediately abandons his wife, goes yeah, looking for this thing. All of a sudden, it's like a phantom. It's where he gets to where it should be. It's not there. But he runs into a mysterious lady named Charlotte Avenel, played by Lisa Lind. Or as she is referred to by <laughs> Jeff's daughter, Picture Lady, which anyone who's seen The Mangler can hear her, hey, Picture Lady! <laughs> Ted Levine <laughs> voice coming out. So she's a photographer. She's this mysterious figure and has a semi-flirtatious banter that she starts with Jeff vaguely. So about that banter, uh -huh. there's a line in it where she says, if wishes were fishes, I forget how it goes. All right. Yep. So I 
in my head said, well, the phrase is, if wishes were fishes, we'd all be Pope. Have either of you ever heard that? If wishes were fishes, specifically, we'd all be Pope. Other than me saying it. I actually hadn't. Maybe. So, I've always said it that way. I don't know why or whatever. So I decided, ah, I'm curious and I'll look it up. That doesn't exist on the internet, except for two <laughs> blogs. If you look up, if wishes were fishes, we'd all be Pope, you get two blogs. One that randomly says it, which is like a Filipino recipe blog or something. And another one, which is a blog about how nobody says this, but this guy does, and he doesn't know why. <laughs> and I have always said that. And now I don't know why. And this was like, this was like a Mandela effect thing, except I had another guy on the internet who's having the same Mandela effect. I have no idea where I've heard this or why I say if wishes were fishes, we'd all be. It's not like it makes sense. Nobody wants to be fucking Pope. Like, what's the upside there? I mean, I guess if you're Catholic, whatever. But, you know, and you look up if wishes were fishes, you know, we would have a fry. You know, there's a variety of different responses to this. But we'd all be Pope is apparently not one of them, except for me and this other dude. And I don't know why. (laughs) This is not something like my parents say, as far as I know. And I, I spent hours trying to find more on why I say this this way and i have no goddamn idea and it's been it's been driving me nuts since so this is actually a plea to our listeners if you've ever heard the phrase if wishes were fishes and finished it with with, we'd all be pope where the fuck i mean it's got to come from catholic church in some fashion right or at least catholics maybe catholic immigrants i don't know none of which i am i'm not catholic i have nothing to do with this i just i (laughs) Anyway, I it, this just like when I looked it up, I'm like, what the fuck? What? Oh shit! The Darkling's a cursed film. It just retroactively undid this thing from your mind. I, That's and amazing. It's, and it's I it's, it, I, I found mean, the fucking is, cursed tape. Holy shit! <laughs> this has been like some Pawnee pool shit in my brain <laughs> since I've seen this because it's just like you know it's a, Mrs. Whatever's cat in my head. Is, wishes, we'd fishes, all be popes. Wishes, wishes, fishes, fishes, wishes, fishes, wishes, wishes, wishes. You're joking. That's what was going through my head when I was trying to get to sleep the other night. If we ever run into Stephen McCaddy at a con, is it? Hey, can we get a cameo from you where you just say, "If wishes were fishes, we all." So yeah, if anybody has heard the phrase said that way and has could shed any light on it, be right. Like, I'll send you something nice, man. I I don't know. I'll send you a plastic fucking Smurf or something. I, who gives a shit? I, just, <laughs> I, need, I need to understand where this comes from in my head. And I can reach out to this other blogger who apparently is probably locked up by now for not knowing how to... Anyway. <laughs> that was one of two of the digressions I mentioned earlier. We'll get to the other one later. No, oh, that's a good one. Moving on. Sorry I sprung a cursed movie on you, but yeah. They don't say it in the movie. It's just that's what... The rest of my- yeah, yeah. <laughs> So they wrap up the auto show. Like I said, Jeff has this vaguely flirtatious thing with Charlotte. Marla, Jeff's wife, comes over and Charlotte's like, oh, let me get a picture of the three of you. So Jeff, his wife and child, she takes a picture of him because the photo comes up later. So Jeff and Marla get home and an invitation has been slid under their door inviting them to Shea Rubin. It's just this big ass card that says, you're invited to an evening with Rubin. Rubin. And it's just in enormous fucking letters diagonally. As if this wasn't enough, there's a voiceover needlessly repeating a line from like three minutes prior where Ruben says, come and see my collection sometime. Jeff and Marla all of a sudden get dressed up. Marla in this like, I think she's got like a blue dress, but has like this white shawl over top. 
And Jeff's shirt. Again, if, if you think Aiden Gein is handsy and you want to see him in the shiniest shirt, go check it out. It's worth noting because later the Darkling refers to Jeff and says, he's a bright, shiny boy, isn't he? And at first I was like, he's being fucking literal. <laughs> he's literally a shiny boy. That's a shiny fucking shirt. Also, their daughter drops a death flag on Marla by saying, hey, mom, you look real pretty as she's leaving. It's almost like she like has this premonition. It's like, oh, wait, mom may not be coming back. I should say something nice. Like, that's what her face said to me. Big death flag drop there. We get to the party. On the off chance you track down this movie, as Jeff and Marla are milling about before Bruno shows up or after Bruno shows up, just watch the other people in the party because it really looks like they were filming like six USA Network movies all on the same lot. Oh, yeah. And they just ran over to all the other sets and said, hey, when you guys are done filming this crowd scene, can we get like four people from every movie to come over to ours? Because it is such an eclectic group of costumed individuals. Very much. Just so. milling about this party. And then there's Bruno himself in his costume. It's just F. Murray Abraham in his red turtleneck. It's a glorious turtleneck. It's impressive. Yeah, it's great. And he's so excited to see Jeff. He's like, Jeff, hey, how you doing? I want to show you my collection. Let me show you my collection. Which he keeps in a greenhouse and shows it off. And this is where we get our first inkling of the mysterious Darkling telepathically talking to Jeff and saying, as you know, Jeff's admiring all these cars and Darkling saying, Ruben's too rich to enjoy this. And Jeff's like, oh, who said that? You know, oh, shit. And, and Ruben says, you know, hey, man, I'm glad you like my cars. Can you help me out with something? Because it turns out he's just so happened on the night of his big gala event, on the side, he's got a black market auto deal set up. Yep. <laughs> like literally adjacent to the property with the shady character by the name of Francis, who's trying to sell him a car. I didn't write down the notes on exactly what the vehicle was, but it's this illicit car deal from this very shady character. Literally during at the exact same time as this gala event. I believe it's a Shelby Cobra. So, yeah, that's right. It was the, it was the Shelby and his guys like only like 100 made or something like that. This is, of course, a test from Ruben to test Jeff's credentials. And Jeff gives the car once over, pulls Ruben aside and says, yeah, this guy's full of shit. It's it, the car's been gimmicked. It's not what he says it is. Bruno goes over, says something to this Francis character. We don't hear it. I wish I could make out what F. Murray Abraham was saying, but I couldn't quite discern it. It's supposed to be ominous. But yeah, yeah I, I think that what it came down to was they couldn't think of the right ominous thing to say. So like, we'll just do it in the distance and we'll let your imagination handle it. Just go mumble. Yeah, I was expecting it to come back when Francis comes back, but it doesn't really. I mean, Francis, no. is, like, they exchange a look, but it's... I expected it to, like, to find out what he said later or for him to die. Like, you know, I've cursed you, you're going to like, die. Like, yeah, it seemed like the sort of thing, like, he would show up dead the next morning or something yeah, like that. Yeah, and none of that happens. Uh, like, Ruben whispered a killing word to him, <laughs> something like this, seven days or some shit. And... Power word kill. <laughs> it's just some lost in translation shit, as it turns out. Again, Ruben's like, hey, Jeff, thank you so much for scoping out. You saved me from getting, you know, this guy really getting one over on me. So as a thank you, so I forgot to mention, like, so one of the cars that Bruno showed off specifically was the Plymouth Superbird that Jeff hallucinated, essentially, or thought he saw at this auto show. Ruben has one, and it is Jeff's absolute dream car. So as a thank you for his assistance, Ruben says, hey, man, why don't you take the Plymouth for a spin just drive it home you know, my thank you to you you know and this is like a hundreds of thousands of dollar car jeff takes him up on it very excitedly he's driving his dream car you know gets in it and he and marla leave the party and jeff decides to take his dream car for a spin 
in a construction zone. <laughs> it is nothing but rebar and road cones and gravel. And he just goes and it's like, cause they're constructing an overpass overhead oh and there's God. like bulldovers and shit. And it's not a lot. It's nope. not dirt. He goes to a fucking construction area. Like <laughs> when I return this hundreds of thousands of dollar car, I want the undercarriage of this car to look like a fucking cheese grater. There's going to be nothing but snails and blown tires. It's just like, like to spin a donuts and gravel. Like what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> Oh. <laughs> like he's just supposed to be excited and, and he's doing like some dangerous stuff and Marla's like hey watch the turns again getting very fortuitous as this is intercut with Ruben going into the Darkling's antechamber we still don't see the Darkling we're just you know seeing Ruben talking through these curtains and the Darkling tells him are you sure you want to do this and Ruben nods and the Darkling chuckles and now we must differentiate between what is supposed to happen and what actually happens. <laughs> what is supposed to happen is as the Darkling is chuckling, he's basically using supernatural abilities to put ill fortune on Jeff and does this basically by casting summon dump truck. Because <laughs> what it is, is Jeff makes a turn and all of a sudden there's a garbage truck that is taking up like the entire street and Jeff has nowhere to go. Again, this is what is supposed to happen is Blinding lights, Jeff sees a truck, Jeff swerves, wrecks the car, and Marla, his wife, is thrown from the vehicle. It turns out the Superbird has an ejector seat. As Casey sits up at home, their daughter sits up at home in the middle of night in distress. What actually happens, so this isn't a movie where obviously they can, this is a USA Network movie from the year 2000. This is a legit expensive car. They had a pristine one and they had a wrecked one. But yep. they didn't have the money to wreck one. <laughs> so him wrecking the car, like most movies, you would probably do it like because the truck lights blind him. Most movies would do this by you use that as a dissolve. Like the screen turns white as he like covers his eyes. And then when the white goes away, the car's wrecked. Use that as a transition point. Not this movie. Is it Pochi Long? He makes some interesting visual choices. But one of those is to depict the car spinning is they do a Batman 66 spin with the camera. The They just spin that motherfucker on its axis. And it just, it just they literally roll the camera. And we then cut to the car upside down. And Jeff is just kind of staring blankly at this vehicle. And, and one wheel is spinning. What is supposed to have happened is Marla is supposedly having been thrown from the vehicle. What actually happens is the car has seemingly rolled so hard that Marla's connection to quantum physics <laughs> is just severed and no longer being bound by the conventional definitions of time and space. <laughs> Marla is not thrown from the car so much as she simply ascends phase shifts out of it <laughs> to another point in time adjacent. Cause the windshield's not even busted. <laughs> <laughs> because Jeff gets out of the car, and again, I mentioned they're constructing an overpass overhead, and he's looking around like, Marla, where are you? Over this, you hear the Darkling saying, I'm the visitor, I'll take you. There's two things you always hear. is the Darkling singing the visitor, and there's always this weird flute theme that plays whenever the Darkling is doing supernatural shit. And all of a sudden, Jeff looks up, and Marla is hanging by her arms. Practically crucified. Yeah, from a power line. 
And again, like no visible, just like him presumably having been electrocuted. But yeah, like you mentioned, there is a recurring thing with characters who die in like a, a sacrificial way or due to the Darkling's influence and their death pose. It's basically like if Jesus was just chilling instead of crucified, like he's up, you're not like your arms aren't out 90 degrees. Like it's your it's like Scarface. Yeah. It's just sitting there leaning back, you know, with your arms out up to your shoulders. You're in like a vaguely crucified position, but at the elbows, the, the arms are hanging limp. So it looks like you're just kind of chilling. But that pose comes up three times. That very specific death pose. So I liked it for her. I remember the second. What was the third one again? Uh, the third one was so the then Bruno when Bruno's That's found second. later. Yeah, Bruno's found later, and then the third one is Charlotte for the ending. Charlotte's in the same pose, right? So it made sense to me for the first and third one. Ruben makes sense because he's got shit under his arms, like literally, he's like yeah. wedged in between like luggage, so yeah. his arms are like literally resting on something. So it's it's not as much of a reach. And Marla's literally hanging like that's. The only part of her body on well, this power line is her arms, so... It's not even, like, how they're crucified, it's, like, why they're crucified. Like, because the th- first and third one makes sense to me, because these are victims who are dying for their sin, for uh, the, uh, someone else's sins. You know, these are people who are suffering for those who have given into the, the Darkling. Whereas, you know, that Bruno is just an asshole. You know, he, yes. he just, it's just, his time was just up. I, I felt the, the crucifixion didn't fit thematically honestly but they're like well we did two of them he's so charming he gets his own crucifixion <laughs> he gets a double crucifixion because how he goes out before then so yeah, he doubles up on that shit we'll, we'll get to that here momentarily jeff is obviously crushed by the death of his wife for which he's responsible for wrecking the car more so just looks mystified again and like how is this physically possible so <laughs> we then fade to black fade up and now we've done a one-month jump per on-screen text. And Jeff is on the phone with Casey, his daughter, who is, we find out soon, is staying with her grandparents. Jeff is face down on a glass table with a bottle of Tanqueray that the label has hastily been scraped off of, <laughs> two pill bottles, and six stray Cheerios. Just six Cheerios scattered on the table. What, you didn't snort crushed up Cheerios in the depths of your... Uh... <laughs> it's the only thing that helps me get by. The honey nuts gotta fill that void in my soul. <laughs> but similar to the Tanqueray bottle, like, it's clearly a Tanqueray bottle of gin. But it's not like the label's been peeled clean off like someone, like, you know, did, like, rubbing alcohol or ran it under tap. It looks like someone took a pair of keys and just, like, scraped it off. Like, you can see gouges on the label. So there's, again, two possible explanations. There's the shoot explanation, which is they probably had a Tanqueray bottle and said, oh, fuck, we didn't license that. And, the, and someone came on and hastily scratched that shit off and tried to turn it so the label wasn't there. Or, kayfabe, Jeff was drinking Tanqueray. This reminds me of her. And just scraped the fucking <laughs> label off. But we know from earlier she was a whiskey person, so. She was a whiskey person, yeah, so it, should, it wouldn't have been the gin, yeah. So Jeff is just drunk and blitzed out of his mind and in his grief. And if you're interested in reading other tales of people who are drunk and blitzed out of their minds, might I recommend Lush and other tales of boozy mayhem. <laughs> the anthology by Dwayne Swarzynski. Nicely done. The first and last stories of the anthology. I haven't read it yet, but it's mentioned in the intro that the first and last stories both take place in a bar and one's a sequel to the other. Also, it has a really gorgeous bar set cover by Heather Vaughn. It's a really nifty cover. So Heather Vaughn did 
amazing work. So here we go. It's one of the ones that takes place in a bar about a guy who has got the best idea in the world that makes people's head explode. That's a fun one. Oh, God, that that alter tape short. (laughs) That that was a fun one. (laughs) All right, if you want to hear it. (laughs) So Casey's on the phone with her dad, and she's like, oh, can I just come home? I'm sick of being the grandparents. And he's drunkenly just spouting off. There's nobody watching. I got to get the place ready, blah, 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 blah. So hangs up with his daughter, immediately popping more pills. Ruben calls. Ruben doesn't even wait for Jeff to say hi. As soon as Jeff picks up, Ruben's like, you motherfucker, you've been avoiding my calls. <laughs> get your ass over And here. Jeff's like, uh. And before he can get a word out, Ruben's like, I'm sending someone over. Jeff comes by. And Ruben decides the best way to cheer Jeff up is to show him his collection of pagan hoopla. It's like, you know, oh, yeah, this is a crucifix. You know, they used to incorporate pagan imagery and crosses. And, you know, this they used to use a lot of serpents before the Bible gave the serpent a bad name. Also get berates Jeff for his painkiller addiction. He's like, hey, man, you got to cut that shit out. Look, I got a side business. I'm doing auto restoration. I want someone who, to work on that side of the business. I'll pay you. And Jeff thinks it's charity at the moment. He's like, no, no, no. I'm going to pay you money, give you commission. Offers him 75K a year. And he's like, ah, I don't know. I'm like, motherfucker, shut up. Take the money. 75K plus commission. Yep. <laughs> and, That's which huge. Which is not insignificant, as we find out in you know the next bit coming up, exactly what that entails. You're, like, You're snorting Cheerios, man. You can at least upgrade <laughs> with this. <laughs> So he says, all right, well, look, if I can't give you the hard sell, I've got something in here that might change your mind. And he's pointing to his little room with the, that he opens with a skeleton key earlier. And Jeff asks, he says, what's in there? And he says, what's called a Darkling. The Darkling, actually, there's only one. I like that he doesn't even beat around the bush. It's just like, ah, it's a supernatural being, you know, we'd make deals yeah. and shit. In Hong Kong, there's a marketplace off Kowloon that sells such things. I found it there. Or maybe I should say, it found me. Next time, buy the Gremlin. <laughs> Yeah, this fucking show. Oh, we'll get to that when we get to the show. <laughs> that was ridiculous. Jeff goes into the Darkling's room, and the Darkling immediately induces a vision of Jeff's Uncle Bob to break the ice. And it's his Uncle Bob cooking gumbo in his backyard, and he's like, ah, you don't measure shit, you just gotta feel it. So hence, Jeff cooking with the force and with a fistful of you know, Cajun seasoning in the kitchen. So then the Darkling's kind of striking up conversation with Jeff, who takes this rather well, especially when we soon see what the the Darkling is. Yep. But Jeff asks, what are you? (laughs) A million dollar question. And the Darkling says, makes a reference to, you know, you remember Peter Pan when, you know, he had Wendy sew his shadow back on? Well, no one did that for me. He refers to himself as a shadow. To illustrate this, we have the first appearance of the Shadow Master. <laughs> Doug Jones! And what we mean by the Shadow Master, it is literally Doug Jones' fucking shadow. It is Doug Jones in silhouette. <laughs> Dancing. In a Peter Pan costume. <laughs> That's it! It's, That's it. It is Doug Jones in silhouette. And it's decidedly Doug Jones, because like, especially oh, yeah. when he dances later, it's like, i seen Night Angel, I know those moves. That's absolutely yep. Doug Jones. You know, it. Oh. That's it. I I saw this and I said, "You got to be fucking kidding me!" <laughs> but that's disappointing. But then it gets doubly confusing because it's like, okay, so it's a thing made of shadow. It's darkness. It's on the walls. It's got some amorphous thing in the in the cage, right? No, it ain't. No, it, no, it ain't. <laughs> it's like they took three. Or, okay, I meant what I said at the beginning that it felt like three separate villains vying for control of this movie. Yeah. <laughs> so you have the shadow bits in the wall, which to his credit, I think Doug Jones did a great job. He's very fluid. He brings a lot of life to it. 
I don't think anybody else would have done as good a job as him. I love it. But it shows up like two, three times for short bits. But then you get to meet the baby. <laughs> it's just a freaking animatronic baby in the yes. cage, which to Tony Gardner's credit, you know, is well done. It looks good. For its time. It's a hell of an animatronic baby. Yeah. Even when it blinks, it's got tears you can see. Yeah. Like, you know, like, it, it's it's impressive. It's impressive work. It can work. emote. Like, it's got expressions. And, yeah. yeah. But then you have also John DiMaggio's voice. So it's these three separate elements that are all supposed to be the same entity. And they're so disjointed. Yes. <laughs> so they're so, they just don't connect. So alternate title for this would be Three Men and a Baby? Right. Well, Two Demons and a Baby, maybe. <laughs> But, it, oh, it's so frustrating. Be- and and I think John DiMaggio wins in the end because that voice is just so... It's the most distinct. Oily. and Yeah, it stands out and it follows him everywhere. And while yeah. I like the other aspects, that voice is king. Yeah, similar to what you just said, like my first, in like my summary thing about points, my first point is simply, what was the goal here? <laughs> right? Just, how much, like... I got hung up on a movie quote watching this and I was and the movie quote. I was like, what movie is this from? I know this movie quote, but where's it from? I can't remember. So I looked it up. It's for fucking revenge of the Sith. Ah. All things. I was like, Oh God. That's, but it's the scene where they're running through this. Obi-Wan and Anakin are running through the spaceship in the opening where they're saving Palpatine and they get caught in the force shield. And you and McGregor just goes, wait a minute. How did this happen? We're smarter than this. <laughs> that's the it was like just the whole movie was basically like i don't think this is a terrible film but it's just like I, i'm trying to discern the intent it feels like the film are like wait a minute how did this happen we're smarter than this <laughs> <laughs> the, the villain is literally okay, so you have the shadow which is like a shadow demon yep like a type of smaller class demon and then you have the animatronic which is basically a fallen cherub which yeah <laughs> honestly well, 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 that concept alone intrigued we me. We get so many different explanations for what the Darkling is. The Darkling... Yeah. And then his voice basically says he's the goddamn devil. Yeah, he implies he's Satan. Then he's like a cherubim, but then he's they also call him an incubus. Then they, it's like, they refer to him as like four different things. Yes! <laughs> and it's never completely settled as far as... Uh, like, are these supposed to be synonymous? It, it very much felt almost like a scam. Like, I would appreciate it more if it turned out it was a scam. I'm this, I'm that. I'm like, please don't say Rumpelstiltskin. <laughs> <laughs> I'm anything but Rumpelstiltskin. <laughs> Rumpelstiltskin, I've never heard of him. Well, now that we mentioned what the Shadow Master is, so yeah, that's all Doug Jones does is he shows up as a shadow, no lines, and, and just illustrates some points for the Darkling. And it's great. Like I said, you can tell it's Doug Jones. This raises a question for me. I said, all right, well, now I got to know. Which movie had more Doug Jones screen time? Legion or this? I think this. Who wins, me or Jake? I think this. I timed it. Oh, did? Legion is 46.05 seconds is what I got. That's including the silhouette of Doug Jones through the windshield as he's driving up, which initially I said, oh, I shouldn't count that. And I was like, well, wait a minute. That's all of his role in the Darkling. So of course <laughs> I should count his So 46.05 seconds. The Darkling, 44.7. It was no! this close. It was this close. So I couldn't believe it. I thought... Because it's a, that ice cream man scene's like what twenty seconds? No, forty six point zero five. Jake, I owe you a coke. <laughs> you win. 
I got the most Doug Jones. So, yeah, there's our introduction to, to Doug Jones. Bravo, Doug Jones. Doug hey, Jones! So, yeah, Darkling is is just telling Jeff, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. I'm, a, I'm a bit of a shut-in. I'm light-sensitive. This comes up later. And he said, but, you know, it made me appreciate the life around me like a blind man remembering sunsets. That's awfully specific, isn't it? <laughs> Jeff makes a reference to having a New Orleans accent. The Darkling says, nah, that's not New Orleans, that's Algiers. And that marks you as poor, not good enough. You want your daughter to grow up poor? You want it? The Darkling is basically this little animatronic life coach. And that's just there to <laughs> talk you up. <laughs> I love the, the bit about his accent because he's an Irish actor having an American blank accent. Yep. Where they make fun of him for not having a Cajun accent because he's from Algiers. So he hit his Algiers accent. I'm like, that, that's like several layers deep from what's going on here. So I appreciated yeah, that. <laughs> so Darkling's giving Jeff the hard sell. Jeff comes out and tells Ruben, and that was a fucking experience. And this also, Ruben is very specifically reflected in a mirror that's just sitting outside the Darkling's room. So again, we get all this mirror imagery. And Ruben's like, you know, oh, yeah, we're going to do great things. But man, that thing in there, it's bigger than both of us. Yeah, Ruben's definitely trying to get. Jeff cozied up to the Darklings for reasons that you know we'll find out shortly. But first, no, he puts Jeff to work. Okay, you, you understand what his goal might be, but why he's doing it makes no, no sense, sense <laughs> at all. But we'll get there. <laughs> yeah. First, he puts Jeff to work on non-Darkling projects, and this is restoring the wrecked Dino from the opening. So this is the car that Bruno found in the junkyard. He's like, all right, I need you to restore this. And Jeff puts months of works into it. And it's a montage set to our second original song for this movie, which is called, I believe it's called Trouble No More. I couldn't find anything on it, but yeah. Jeff's working on this car and he's, he, Bruno shows up and like months pass and Bruno's like, oh, this is looking great. And Jeff's like, yeah, I did good work. Just one thing. It's not the Buscaro Dino. I checked the chassis numbers and it's not real. And Bruno says, correct. Cause you're going to forge that shit. <laughs> gives him a magnesium bar which is, again, highly flammable. This comes up again and says, you need to take this and here are the numbers and you're going to forge the numbers for the Dino. Jeff protests and Ruben, Ruben snaps on him quick and says, open your eyes. And like, Jeff has barely protested at this point. And Ruben's like, look, I'm selling this shit. I'm selling on the black market and you're going to get 10%. I'm probably going to sell it for $10 million. So come on. And Jeff's like, all right begrudgingly does it puts his morals aside which you can tell he's putting his morals aside because he ain't phantom hears marla's voice from the afterlife <laughs> speaking to him and he oh, oh, oh. cut to a black market auction site <laughs> where, where they do it didn't need feel good because i was thinking i was like i would have done that shit in 11 seconds <laughs> oh we're gonna fake this well you get a cut how much 10 percent. bang right to the magnesium <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, they, they go to this black market auction site, which is, is just there so they can sell the vehicle. They sell it for $6 million in gold. And the, the point of this scene is two things. One is Charlotte shows back up, the photographer that Jeff ran into at the auto show early in the film. Yep. Charlotte is on assignment to photograph this car and other cars for a mysterious bidder. And, but they sort of strike up flirtatious banter again. Jeff starts telling her, yeah, my wife's dead. And before he can really get further into that, Here's another car that's going on for sale, which is the the Plymouth Superbird, the car that you know he fucking wrecked. Jeff gets pissed at this, storms out, and goes and events to the Darkling, and the Darkling shit talks Ruben the whole time, while also calming Jeff's nerves 
by wrapping him up all sexy like <laughs> and like there's a slow motion sequence of like one of the darklings few abilities is it has telekinesis but only for bolts of fabric <laughs> and it's all of these shots of fabric just encircling aiden gian's neck and going down his arms and he's like fucking cradled in this thing and just like spinning it's it's very sexy yeah it's supposed to get kind of give this like imagery of like him being wrapped in sensation yes and like maybe like you know like this cathartic kind of like calming moment but no it totally looks like he's just getting wrapped up in and like caught in the curtains <laughs> muslin kinesis <laughs> so yes using his newfound winnings we get another flash forward jeff is now in a swanky house and calling his daughter again because he's still not letting her back in the house. She's still at her goddamn grandparents' place. She says, "You know, Dad, I think you're avoiding me because I remind you, of Mom." And Jeff says, eh, yeah, "You can come home in a day or two. Gotta go." Hangs up, and the Darkling psychically speaks to him and tells Jeff, "Now is the time." Cut to Reuben. Now, as we will soon find out, Reuben has basically engineered his own destruction <laughs> by putting Jeff in the orbit of the Darkling. He said, Ruben is not going to live beyond this next scene we're about to describe. So at the start of this scene, presumably based on how Ruben reacts, is Ruben knows that this is like it. He's about to go. So Ruben apparently decides to spend his final moments by playing a goddamn Ninja Turtle because it's just him with a katana in a hallway going, Wah! Yeah! It's like, is this how you want to go out? Just- I, I almost felt like Ruben thought he wasn't going to die. It might not have been initially, but when when Jeff shows up, because Jeff's first line is when Jeff storms in, it, like I said, interrupts him, you know, mid katana session, and Jeff says, "I don't want to share anymore." Is the first line, and Ruben just nods and says, "Yeah, that makes sense. Two men can't have the same shadow." And then Jeff goes to storm into the Darkling's room, and Ruben's like, "Hey, man, thanks." Jeff goes in, so yeah, it, it seems like Ruben has some idea of. The rest of the What's script. What's about to play out for him? Probably not the way it plays out. I disagree. Out. <laughs> I, I got very much the feeling that Ruben... Okay, so Ruben clearly thought that he was passing on the Darkling to the mechanic. But at the same time, I really think... Here's my problem. Ruben is not one for morals, ethics. You know, like he doesn't give a shit. He's just happy to be rich. Why give up the cash cow? Why is he like they give no explanation whatsoever for why he for was why? released yeah. from this? Yeah, it's like you know, not even they don't even really hint heavily that like oh, I'm just annoyed. I got all my money and all my stuff. I'm good. Whatever. I'm gonna get rid of this thing. I'm annoyed by it. That's like the closest explanation I could get to. But I'm making almost all of that up out of whole cloth because none of that is really explained. It is led to believe. I'm led to believe that this thing likes to take bodies on its way out the door and make a scene of it. So Ruben should have known that this was, like you said, like this is a death sentence. Right. But he acts like, you know what? I think of all the people interrupt with, (laughs) I think I'm going to get out. I think I'm going to be okay. I have nothing to gain from cutting off this relationship. But you know what? I think I'm going to be okay. It's like, what the fuck? Yeah, and... Well, because so later in the film, they established to like the, the Darkling essentially has to move from one partner, one master to another has to be bound. Yeah, it has to be bound. And so, yeah, so presumably Ruben 
had some association with the previous master, although the, yeah. the way the Hong Kong scene plays Except out. He bought him in a market. Yeah, he says, I found him in a shop. So again, that's very bizarre. But then the other thing, too, is so flash forward later when Jeff is in a Ruben S situation where Jeff's trying to get out of the deal. One of the things when the Darkling explains this, Jeff very wisely asks, am I going to end up like Ruben? Am I, am I going to die? And the Darkling says, yeah, yeah, maybe, but I don't think you'll mind that much. It's like, well, if that raises the question that can't you just kill yourself? So presumably that's not an option. If he's like, oh, I don't think you really care about living or dying. Well, then just fucking kill yourself. Which raises the question of why Ruben wouldn't just do that. Yep. He wants to get rid of just. So, yeah, there there are questions. So Ruben dicking around with his katana. Jeff goes in and goes up to the Darkling. Darkling says, oh, wait, 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 not quite yet. And this is where we get our first good look at it. And again, we can see it's it is an animatronic baby in a cage with this glyph on it that comes up. And it also has glass built into it. Again, glass and reflection imagery keeps coming up. And Darkling says, oh, give me one minute. And we get what are presumably Doug Jones' hands <laughs> wiggling out. They could be someone else's, but they, they could be Doug Jones. Both towards Jeff and also Ruben. So Ruben, initially, he sees this crucifix that had a dead snake on it. Now has a live snake on it. Says, that's peculiar. Walks up to it and is compelled by a shadowy figure to put his fist through pull this crucifix out and stab himself in the goddamn chest with it. So again, crucifix-esque death. And Darkling's like, all right, now you can take me. Jeff covers the Darkling up, starts to take it out, runs into a dying Reuben, says, ah, shit, he dials 911, but hangs up immediately. So just dials it and goes to leave. But it's this, you know, very surreal bit where no matter how Jeff tries to leave, he always ends up back in front of Reuben, who's just sitting there bleeding out from a hole in his chest. And Ruben's, his dying words to Jeff are, of course. And that's all he says. This comes back later. And Darkling says, GTFO time. (laughs) And they do. And so cut to Jeff now. He's got the Darkling in the passenger seat of his car, driving away from the scene of a a death. This is so weird. Where he is accosted by a roving band of 90s punks. It's so random. who fakes getting hit by, like, he throws himself on the hood of a car, acts like he just got hit, and Jeff stops, and the guy's like, ah, sucker, and then his three compatriots come out, and they all start just, like, comic sound effect, kicking the shit out of Jeff. Take his car, and and go, like, all right, let's head out! They make it all of 30 (laughs) feet. (laughs) This shot is legitimately funny, because they start the car, drive off, and go, woo, and then, and then, like, ah! <laughs> they just pile out of this thing. Except one dude who is cradling a broken hand. It looked worse than it's that. It's not even broken. He's just kind of just like holding his wrist. It looked almost like acid eaten to some degree. Yeah, it's it's hard to see. Yeah, it could have been. I don't the know. Darkling is yeah. this weird like deterioration effect. Yes. The Darkling is so triumphant with this that it's singing vis- I'm a visitor take for a ride <laughs> and it has one of the most interesting line deliveries of won't kids ever learn Jeffrey you don't bet the darkling <laughs> commercial <laughs> break is like, what the f- <laughs> okay. so a note on this scene it's shot in front of a building an old brick building that I had just for whatever reason caught my eye and on the side of the brick building, it says Utah Ice and Storage Company. Yes. And I was like, 
And up until this point, I had assumed this movie was shot in, you know, L.A. or whatever back lot, you know, they had. And I was like, is this shot in Utah? It clearly was. There's a couple of things, but including the, you know, the, the pig boys. <laughs> so, but I got kind of curious about it. So I looked up the Utah Ice and Storage Company. So I was curious, is this a real building? Is this a, you know, like a set lot or something like that? It's It's a real building. And I found an archive of old Utah Salt Lake City photographs. That building was torn down in 2010, and there was a blog post that had a whole bunch of different pictures of it. it. Didn't mention the movie because why the fuck would it? And so the Utah Ice and Storage Company was owned by a creamery, which was a larger company owned by, and it had the guy's name. The guy who owned this and the creamery, his name H. J. Faust. Nice. What? So it was the other <laughs> part of that business. So this building. It was Utah Ice and Storage Company. The other half of it was the Faust Creamery. That's amazing. In our so Faustian bargain film. is shot in front of the Faust Creamery. That had even to be though it's not, It doesn't say that anymore. Well, it doesn't say that anymore. <laughs> right. It just says the Utah Ice and Storage Company on the side of the building. And then 2000, this was like the, it was disillusioned. Like the company was closed in like 1907 or something. Oh wow! So like this isn't like it was like oh this was the fast creamery and it just closed so we filmed in front of it. No, there's no markings of that. The building just happens to have been owned by that H. J. Faust Jr., of whom nice. there's not a lot of information on. Wow! And I, I just noticed it because I just randomly saw that on the sides. It was shot in Utah and looked up the building and there you go, the Faustian Creamery. That's amazing. Having a Faust in a Faust movie essentially. Yep. That's- love it. That's uh, and I and I I don't see any way it could have been intentional unless they were Utah Salt Lake City scholars and knew that this used to be the Faust or was owned by the Faust Creamery, which why would they know? Thank you for I meant to look that up the building because the side of that building is so distinct. I meant to look that up. So thank you for looking that up. That's awesome. Good job. Yeah, if you if you Google it, you get some interesting photos of it. So anyway, that was my other really random aside. That's awesome yeah. though. I, I just saw who owned it. I'm like, wait, that can't be right. So after we get the weird don't pet the Darkling line, we cut I get another time jump at a commercial break. Now now we're one year later. And I, and I got to say, this is the point where this movie stopped being interesting to me at all. It, it definitely takes a dip here. It, it yeah. loses some momentum. Here. This is where we start stretching things out to make the 11 o'clock news times. Well, you know. The finale, I think, is, is it, it picks back up for the, for the very yes. end. But yeah, it, it dips a bit here. But now Casey, Jeff's daughter, is now living with him for about 10 seconds because he is immediately <laughs> sending her back to her grandparents at the start of this scene. This is the third time she's been at her grandparents' place. And there's about to be a fourth, or at least a fourth attempt. And she's like, God damn it, I don't want to go back to my grandparents. And, and Jeff's line is just shits on Detroit. And he goes, hey, I don't want to go to Detroit. And that's worse. I was like, Jesus Christ, Jeff. <laughs> So Casey's sad, but it touches her dad's face and says, it's okay. And So cut to the set of Jean-Claude Van Damme's movie Cyborg, where we get to this <laughs> derelict building in this post-apocalyptic wasteland where these big shafts of light coming down, where we meet a gray-haired man named Clive, who is very nervous and, and just like, oh, I got a car for you here, boss. And Jeff shows up and, and Clive is showing him the wreckage of james dean's death car so this is very much this is a real car versus some of the other well, the ones were the Bascaro dino like that whole mythos around the car was not quite but this is james dean's car the 1955 spider and the guy's talking about it supposedly cursed history i don't know if the items he cites jeff cites most of them i don't know if they're 
those incidents are legitimate, but that car does allegedly have, you know, this cursed mystique about it. Right. You know, the 1955 spider, which I guess James Dean dubbed the little bastard, which is interesting <laughs> because they never call it that. It's it, You see it written on the car. They never refer to it as that. But the Darkling is later called specifically a little bastard in the finale. And so I, wonder, I was like, what if that was written in? I mean, it could just be line of dialogue god knows but i was like i wonder if at one point that was like a deliberate callback to to the car so this is a mirror of the whole scene of the opening with reuben in the junkyard where jeff's like yep. you know this clive guy's like well it's, i'm not sure if it's actually his car and you know i got no documentation and jeff's like you know don't worry about it we're gonna do this i'm not selling it on an underground auction we're taking this to an official auction i'm gonna give you a cut just you know trust me yeah this this one felt weird because it's like weird. everything he says sounds legit like we're gonna get dna testing we're gonna do this we're gonna do that yeah he says like because clive is worried he's like well it doesn't belong to us it belongs to his family and, and jeff says not for much longer you're gonna declare this a junkyard legally which means anything on your property and has like this whole scheme set up so it's like that's the only nefarious bit is like you know Who's this belong to? Yeah. It's been sitting there for how many decades? Just picking up dust. <laughs> and then they cut from there to kind of the prelude for the auction in the Vatican. I don't know what this location was, but it has all it's this, weird. The, yep. This vaulted ceiling and all this painted. So I assume it was someplace in, in Utah from what you said, Jay, but I don't know the actual location. Yeah, it's sitting like the, the the middle of this enormous building. So it's a, a whatever location they picked. With the tabernacle, for all I know. I mean, <laughs> and the whole thing. I mean, it's setting up the car auction, but it's an excuse for Jeff to run into Charlotte again, the photographer. And yet again, she's here for photographing a car. But in this case, she's there because she saw Jeff's name was going to be on the auction. She's there to see him. They strike up a flirtatious relationship again. Talks about how she hates rich men with soft hands. Kind of a callback to Marla's whole thing about, you know, she liked the, you know, the auto worker lifestyle, whatever, blah, blah, blah. So then cut to Jeff swinging by the grandparents place to pick up his granddaughter, Casey, with Charlotte in tow. And Casey apparently signs off on the relationship because she takes Jeff's hand and Charlotte's hand, puts them together. It's like, hey, new mommy. I mentioned this because Casey's position on this will decidedly change in the finale. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then so the Darkling is just instantly shit talking <laughs> charlotte so now we got to jeff's first interaction with the darkling after he stole it from reuben we mentioned before where the darkling was being kept in reuben's now granted reuben had a palatial estate it was in this big vaulted room big stairwell all these curtains set up you know this whole elaborate setup and it just it looked so swanky. Jeff is keeping this thing in the goddamn garage. It is he has the garage and he has this back room and this motherfucker is just sitting on a table while there's literally just racks of supplies on the back wall. It is fucking hilarious that this darkling spent all this time telling Ruben, I'm ready to move on to something else. I need a new master, buddy. And then he's been kept in this goddamn shit. <laughs> with like one blanket on him. And that's why Littlefinger doesn't have the Darkling very long. He's in there with like all the fucking cans and shit. I really wanted later when Chet shows back up. The Darkling's just sitting back there. <laughs> it's quite the collection you've got here, Jeff. You know how old these Chef Boyardee cans are? 
Well, they stopped making Pac-Man pasta shapes and chicken-flavored golden sauce in 1985. Must be at least 10 years past its expiration date. What do you say, Jeff? How about we crack one of these open and live life on the edge? <laughs> okay quick interjection so this was filmed in salt lake city utah and i got curious and i looked up places of interest in salt lake city and i think that car auction took place in the capitol building that would make sense yeah quick little investigation yeah i think it was the capitol building that that took place in. it was particularly apt because there's a shot coming up of of jeff coming down like the main stairwell and it's framed like this very politician-y shot of him sending in a suit and shit so yeah it's got that vibe so darkling is instantly shit talking charlotte and is like ah you can do better than her (laughs) but you know what she probably wants something from you maybe she wants me people talk maybe i'll let her take me you're getting boring and Jeff says, ah, oh, stay away from her. Again, you're keeping a motherfucker in the shed, man. You can't get too pissed at the Darkling for maybe <laughs> wanting to roll the dice on a better set of living accommodations. <laughs> Cut to the official auto auction where they're selling the spider. There's a painting there that I guess purportedly is supposed to be of James Dean, but I guess they couldn't get the rights to James Dean, so it very much looks like it's a picture of Kirk Douglas. <laughs> very much so. It's like a James Dean photo bought off Wish. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's a James Steen painting restored by that lady. <laughs> <laughs> Who did the Jesus painting? <laughs> That's not far yeah, it's it's check it out. Well maybe we'll put a still up of it. It's very jarring. So the car sells for twelve point seven five million. Charlotte's very happy and gives Jeff a congratulations for this, and it's a framed photo of the picture she took with him and you know his now deceased wife and their daughter Casey. This is from the auto show in the opening. And Clive, the guy who hooked him up with this car, who owes 700 grand to the IRS, is so excited by, you know, his newfound wealth that he starts talking up Charlotte. And this is where we get the Darkling apparently potentially inducing some hallucinatory stuff as far as Jeff getting paranoid and, and what he thinks they may be saying. And specifically hearing Charlotte saying, I hear he gets his advice from darker forces, like darker forces, darker forces. Dental plan, darker forces. Dental plan, darker forces. Yeah, there, there is some repetition in this movie that, that wears on you after a while. And Jeff gets pissed, goes back to the Darkling, and is confronting mid garage. He's like, stay the fuck away from Charlotte. He's like, hey, man, I'm just letting her know I'm available. And they have all this, you know, flashback. They're talking about his relationship with Marla and how the Darkling had a hand in that. And so we're going to get a bit where I read from the script verbatim because this is our first bit where the darkling kind of addresses what it is sort of and because jeff asked it explicitly what are you i am the shadow the darkness inside each man some let me in some don't you welcomed me like a whore they all did reuben desad machiavelli lucretia all the way back to judas all my companions, sloth, gluttony, greed, lust, I've seen them all. Yours is envy. He goes in more, but it's this real grab bag of, <laughs> of shit. And, and we get more later on top of this. Jeff says, out, why are you doing this to me? The Darkling says, I'm here to torment the likes of you. 
and torment him he does with tap dancing Doug Jones. (laughs) (laughs) And the cue line is the Darkling saying, darkness is my kingdom. It's where I dance. You could say I'm the prince of, well, you know the rest. And that's the kind of the big prince of like, I'm the fucking devil illusion. While Doug Jones is got a top hat and cane and so on. Just stabbing it up. Jeff has to smash a window to get away from this motherfucker too. And just, and flees to Hong Kong in quotes. And it's theoretically the guy who gave it to him, like through transferred yes. over. He's trying to track with the, to the, the shop out off Kowloon where Ruben apparently got this. He sees a silhouette of a blonde woman who looks like Martha, who leads him into the shop. Owner comes up and Jeff's like, oh, I'm, uh, I'm looking for a darkling. And the owner tries to sell him a framed dead bug. Jeff's like, no, 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 no. He unfolds a piece of paper with a drawing of this glyph that we're only shown like once earlier in the film, but the yep. camera does linger on it. No, no, no. Darkling. And now the shop owner cackles and says, finally, Ruben found someone to replace him as they struggle. Like the man's poking Jeff with a cane as he says this line. Jeff very lightly pushes back. The man takes a flat back bump and dies. (laughs) (laughs) He falls four feet (laughs) from standing to the ground and is just dead on impact. And Jeff just instantly GTFOs, sees the Marla hallucination again. Hugs her, and then when he pulls back, it's still a blonde woman, but now it's decidedly not Marla, it's another woman. She's, you know, saying, oh, yes, Jeff, you want to kill the Darkling? Kill it, but what's going to happen to you? Come on, Jeff, a deal's a deal, right? So again, the Darkling is apparently inducing hallucinations from Hong Kong. Yeah, like he gets the entire crowd to stop at once. Yeah, Yeah. to stop and laugh at him. And then to further prove his point, the motherfucker calls him (laughs) on his phone. (laughs) Pulls his phone up. And the Darkling says, hey, man, all's forgiven. Come on back. Because guess what? I got you a gift. Because apparently he's, he's been making a lot of calls. Because the Darkling, to just piss on his lawnmower, bought the Plymouth Superbird that you know, Jeff <laughs> killed his wife in. So again, they, they have this real push-pull relationship where the Darkling's like, ah, fuck you, and then I didn't mean it, baby. Come on back. I still love you. <laughs> it's this really just kind of gaslighty, very twisted relationship. An undetermined amount of time passes while Jeff is basically starving himself, apparently. Because the Darkling's like, hey, man, you got to eat. And so, all right, all right, all right. Tell you what, buddy. I'll let you out if you find a replacement. And I I got someone in mind. I'm thinking, I'm thinking Charlotte. And Jeff talked about this earlier. Jeff very wisely asks, are you going to kill me like you did Ruben? And the Darkling very honestly replies, yeah, maybe. But do you give a shit at this point? So... (laughs) So, and Darkling says, Charlotte's already waiting for me. Cut to the living room of Jeff's estate where Charlotte and Casey are playing checkers next. Big ass bowl of pretzels. <laughs> it was, too. <laughs> he's upgraded from six Cheerios. That's how you know he's moved up. He's huge the bowl of pretzels. I bet they're Snyder's, too. The good <laughs> shit. He's snorting them good sourdough pretzels now. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, they're playing checkers and jeff says hey why the fuck's casey here you know casey's supposed to be with her grandparents and charlotte says you called me and you told me to bring her and then casey the daughter starts very eerily singing the visitor and the darkling says telepathically she's got such a lovely voice and commercial break back from commercial break and jeff is chucking his daughter the fucking back of charlotte's car and tells charlotte take her anywhere but here 
anywhere. And Charlotte slaps the shit out of him and then says, okay. <laughs> We're about to intercut between two scenes. So one is the Jeff portion of where Jeff goes from here. But the Charlotte portion is... <laughs> apparently at her very first turn it seems based on the editing traffic accident construction like everywhere she turns reminds me of my commute (laughs) reminded me of late night parades and uh, and marches that kept you guys from going back to the store (laughs) (laughs) okay oh oh oh. (laughs) we're gonna let that one slide i hit a nerve So Jeff is on an excursion, showing up on the doorstep of Baron, played by Todd Bridges. He was referred to Baron by Stutz, his old boss at the Cajun restaurant. Tells Jeff, he's like, all right, look, for $100 an hour, no spells, no bull, no fortunes. I just give advice, okay? Jeff shows him the same glyph that he showed the shop owner in Hong Kong. And Baron says, oh, shit, I know that. That's a Sumerian binding rune for unclean spirits. And now he gives another definition for what the Darkling is. And he says it is, quote, the opposite of a cherubim, which would sort of explain why it looks like a baby. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but he says also refers to it as an incubus. And he says an incubus is at its weakest when it's being transferred between hosts. So your one way out of this is if it picks a new host and the new host and the old host die, it's going to have nowhere to go and it'll be banished. Which, again, doesn't jive with Ruben just stumbling on the motherfucker in the shop at Kowloon. But hey, (laughs) who am I to tell Baron his job? If if you Google the opposite of a cherub, you get devil, adversary, beast, dastard, diablo, hellhound, archfiend, Beelzebub, demon, or dibbuk. Dibbuk. But no incubus. No incubus. Everything else, but no incubus. Yeah, again, it's it's very peculiar how they, (laughs) the ever-shifting definition of this thing. Charlotte and Casey have no choice but to go back to the house, or at least that's what they decide to do. Casey instantly goes inside. and Well, Charlotte goes in at first to make a call because her cell's dead. Then the landline's dead. Goes out. Casey's missing. Casey's sitting in the garage singing the visitor because of fucking course. Just starts talking all kinds of shit on Charlotte and starts saying, I got a new friend now. And she doesn't call it a darkling. She calls it a darling. Okay. And says, yeah, the darkling. And it hates you. Charlotte says, well, that's enough out of you. Talks her back in the car. And then she goes inside to confront the Darkling, which is making very baby-esque cooing noises now, just from its recesses. And this is where they introduce something else new. Maybe this came up in the Jeff bits, and I don't remember it, but this is where they introduce the idea that the Darkling smells. Because when Charlotte goes in, she kind of wrinkles her nose at it. And this comes up you know, in all the subsequent sequels. People were like, um. Yeah, I don't remember anything prior to this about it nope, smelling. I assume they're going for brimstone, but... Because they're just writing this shit as they go along. Yeah. Yep. Like, uh, what do we got? Sulfur brimstone. Fine. Fuck it. So she sees this thing and first it looks like a baby and then it twists its visage. So it looks like this twisted, elderly, burned, scarred version of Jeff. Sort of. It's it's really bizarre kind of makeup and like old man gray hair. It's almost like implying that, you know, the Darkling is all of the weakness and the dying and the sickness that lives within him. So, and scares Charlotte, telekinetically throws her out, which it shouldn't be able to do because she's flesh, but because she's wearing fabric, presumably that's how it's able <laughs> to rest because it's very limited in its power set. But it telekinetically throws her out. And all of a sudden we get this like really bizarre music cue for this. And she's like, 
all right, motherfucker. And we get this like Jalo-esque lighting. It's all bright reds and greens. We get Sam Raimi-esque like Dutch angles. We got some Dutch angles throughout, but we got all these weird camera angles. She's busting through the door with a crowbar. And then the Darkling telekinetically pushes the crowbar into her and impales her. (laughs) And she flies back again in crucifix pose and slams into the back of the garage. Smash cut to Jeff returning home. And Casey's just hanging out in the living room says, where's Charlotte? And Casey says, I couldn't open the garage door. And if you want an example of how rich Jeff is, the gears on this fucking garage door. Yep. Because Jeff goes in and lifts the garage door from the outside like it weighs fucking nothing. <laughs> and just zoop, <laughs> And then it drifts shut behind him with Charlotte's dead body pinned <laughs> to it with a crowbar. Yep. So no resistance at all. That's how smooth this motherfucker is. <laughs> Top of the line garage door on this. He didn't need to use the remote. Just manual. <laughs> and then turns around. He's like, holy shit, it's, it's Charlotte's dead body. And impaled with a fucking crowbar. Arms out to the side for some fucking reason. And he's like, oh, fuck. Freddy's nightmares lighting ensues is my next yep. note. And Casey comes in and says, is she dead? And Jeff's like, yeah. And Casey, good. And the Darkling has now been moved at some point And has now been moved up to Casey's room. Casey, who's occupying herself with trivia, and Jeff's like, "Hey, can I can I see that darkling you got there?" And she brings it out. The darkling is now in a radio flyer cart, just yep. covered in stuffed animals, <laughs> and she pulls like ten stuffed animals on. So again, the the settings of of like how the darkling is positioned is fucking hilarious. From opulence to shed to the closet from E.T., basically. (laughs) It's amazing. Jeff confronts, he's looking at the Darkling, and that's where Casey's like, hey, it smells. Jeff's like, hey, you want Casey? You can have her. You want my daughter? You got her. Just let me go. And Darkling says, yeah, we can do that, buddy. And Jeff says, just tell me one thing. What's her sin? Because the Darkling earlier made all these references to people having sin, now Jeff's sin was envy. And the Darkling's response is, that's the best part. She doesn't have one, which makes her perfect for my collection. Which again, what what is this motherfucker's object? Like, is it a, a sin? Is it not? What? <laughs> well, the, the impression I got from that was it collects souls and the soul's impressiveness is determined by how good it was and how not good it was by the end. So okay. like Ruben is bullshit. <laughs> he's already <laughs> fucked. So that's like just a little change there. Whereas Jeff is like, Ma, like pretty good, but he's done some shit and he's capable of corruption. And so he's a nice, healthy jump. Whereas the kids like all win. <laughs> it's sort of like when Ruben in the beginning is talking about, you know, you collect things and you get good things and you get this great thing. But honestly, once in a blue moon, you get the pinnacle. Oh, yeah. It's a kind of a callback to the pinnacle line. Yeah. Yeah. Ruben does have a line specific when he's yep. talking vaguely about the Darkling earlier. And he says, uh, every now and mm-hmm. again, when you're collecting something, you find that one thing, that pinnacle, that, you know, totally unique thing. Yep. So, yeah. Uh, so it's clear to me with this is that the Darkling's intention is to get her as pure and innocent as she is, and then not let her go until she is thoroughly 100% corrupted okay. and then collect her soul. The idea being the ultimate run. Speaking of stuff that's established earlier in the film, though, when you're talking about the pinnacle bit, one of the things that the Darkling established earlier is he's very light sensitive, which comes up because Jeff's like, you know, hey, take my daughter instead of me. And then 
all of a sudden he shuffles like the darkling acts like it's like sort of kind of starting to transition itself we get the fucking weird flute music again jeff quickly shuffles his daughter out of the room shuts the door and then we get this amazing edit of jeff saying i got something for you and he slams down a magnesium bar you know like he used earlier to burn the numbers off they don't do this shot once they do it three times it's blam 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 the exact same shot back to back blam 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 and they do that because the darkling's next line begins well 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 so it's blam 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 well 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 so it's a very comedic edit and all of a sudden it's just kind of jarring so he's got this magnesium huge ass magnesium bar darkling's like yeah bullshit you don't got it in yeah if anyone knows i do and which jeff's Pulls out a, a little, you know, like acetylene torch, lights the magnesium bar, and all of a sudden we are in a white void. We get this rapid montage of all these different faces of the Darkling. We get Twisted Jeff, Twisted Ruben, Marla's there, Charlotte's there. If you can do a frame by frame, please do, because some of the faces are fucking hilarious, and they're only up there for like three frames. There's one particular F. Murray Abraham one that's I think is hysterical. So Jeff, in this weird sequence, he picks up the Darkling's cage, slams it down, the glass breaks. So again, we get another glass image, but now the glass shatters. He picks up the Darkling, and they stare at each other for <laughs> long, and Jeff says, of course. And the Darkling says, of course. Arcaning back to Ruben's final words of, of course. And then they dance. They just pirouette as, as he's holding the Darkling out. And if you look... There's actually an umbilical cord in this scene going from the Darkling to Jeff. Wow. You can actually see this. So now they're physically connected. So they're somehow merging. <laughs> Meanwhile, Casey's outside and all she sees is smoke roiling out from her room and this cacophony of voices. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, a 2000 CGI baby face lurches out of her bedroom door before it lurches back and the door CGI shatters into oblivion. Still looks better than the the uh, Nightmare on Elm Street remake scene of that. Oh, the wall scene? Yeah, yep. legit. It legit is like on par, at least with that scene. Despite, you know, predating it by many, many years. So Casey heads into the room and we hear Jeff. We don't see him, but we hear Jeff say, no, let me die. And Casey, I can't, daddy. And Paul's... Jeff is now on her radio flyer cart. And so she pulls <laughs> this radio flyer cart out of her room. We don't get a good look at Jeff. He is smoldering. Yep. <laughs> and so she's pulling out just a smoldering body. Smash cut to indeterminate time in the future of what initially looks like Jeff, but we quickly find out is a Jeff Darkling hybrid who is yep. burned head to toe. His hands are fucked up, he's wheelchair bound, and he's blind. But he talks intermittently, but with Jeff's voice and the Darkling's voice and kind of has a cadence to his voice of somewhere in between. As Casey is pushing them just along a pier and he says, oh, is the sun shining? Harkening back to the Darkling talking about how he can never see the sunshine. Casey basically says, I'm sorry y'all fucked up, Daddy. <laughs> and he says, well, you gotta take the bitter with the sweet, which is another callback line. And then the three voices, the Darkling, Jeff, and Casey all sing the visitor as Casey pushes the, the wheelchair down this pier. If you watch, so it's this big crane shot, you know, from a pretty good distance. 
And if you watch, she is hauling ass with that. Like she is full speed zoom. So it looks like she's trying to push him off the end. <laughs> like she's about to just push him. Out I the thought that's water. what was going to happen. I thought she was going to dump him in the salt lake there and just nah. That'd be hilarious, but no. And we end as we went in on the fucking song, The Visitor. And yep. confused is when we started. Gotta take the bitter with the sweet, Jake. <laughs> well, I mean, it felt like uh, he destroyed the binding, released the Darkling, but they were still bound. They were still connected to each other. Yeah. And so when it, need, it got sucked into him because he had no choice. Now, here's my thing. It could go one of two ways. Either someday... Jeff will die, and they'll both go their separate ways into you know whatever is in the other side of the mortal coil. Or, on a darker note, Jeff is now just this like it's going to be a thousands of year old fracked up body housing, <laughs> you know, <Yeah. laughs> this demon just, inside of it, just trapped. In. <laughs> I was going to eat that mummy. <laughs> Basically, turns into the movie in a glass cage. <laughs> 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 oh jesus christ oh, god help anyone who gets that reference oh god <laughs> but it feels like they find this weird kind of synergy and and like balance you know jeff is released from having to do terrible shit yeah and it gets access to the sunlight to some degree and they still both get to be with her and you know, maybe just maybe they'll find like salvation or they're fucked. You know, it's one or the other. But <laughs> yeah, it, it, it can basically feel the breeze now is the Darkling's main upgrade, which it could before, because one of my favorite is when Jeff smashes the window when he leaves and comes back from Hong Kong. Darkling's like, can you fix that shit? The window's still fucking broken. It's like, I'm freezing my ass off in here. <laughs> you know, those old curtains that Ruben had, that was insulating shit. <laughs> I'm sitting here in the, on top of the goddamn ramen noodles, freezing my balls. <laughs> and that's the Darkling. Yeah. Uh, A Doug Jones Day classic. <laughs> Happy <laughs> Doug Jones Day. One Happy Doug Jones Day. Despite, like, obviously we got jokes. It It is very much... It is a 2000 direct-to-USA horror film and all that entails. It, it is what you pay for. It's fine. Stylistically, it's sporadically interesting. Yes. But largely just dull in execution. Yep. But the puppet's pretty good. The puppet's good. The puppet looks good. You know, Tony Gardner did great work. The voice is amazing. The CG's ass, but that's what you get in a 2000 TV movie. The, and again... No offense to Frankie Blue, I thought the music choices in this are bizarre. So the score, I thought, detracted from it at several points. Again, it felt very Freddy's Nightmares sonically, but like a weird Freddy's Nightmares, like an even weirder Freddy's Nightmares episode anyway. Yep. But it is, it's, it's, it's kind of a confounding film because like it's sporadically, again, it's a weird thing to come back to, best I quote, we're smarter than this. How do we end up? Because... It's sporadically like we're going to do repeated visual motifs with mirrors. There's some fun stylistic flares. I, I would really love to talk to either, you know, either of the screenwriters and say, can you tell me like, what was the process on this? Because so Preston Sturges Jr. It gets the story by credit in addition to a screenplay credit. So Preston Sturges did the first draft and you just have to expect 
that the initial pitch was something more elaborate than Faust, but for gearheads. So when Scarpadane came on, was it a case of, we've got this R-rated horror script, we need you to turn this into a 2000s USA movie with only one scene with blood in it, which is Ruben's death? And it touches on this occasionally interesting religious imagery that's often also really forced with like the forced crucifix stuff, mm-hmm. Marlowe's bizarre ass death. So there's, it's, it's just so many peculiar choices throughout. And where it feels like, it feels like there was more interesting intent here. Like there's the callback in the trivia show at the end when Casey's listening to trivia and there's the trivia bit about the three furies, yep, which are the goddesses of vengeance who live in the underworld and tortured sinners you know, Electo, Tisiphone, and Megara, I guess, are the names. And, mm-hmm. like, that's a parallel. So there's, again, it's like, what were you going for here fully? But I, I was vaguely entertained. It very much feels like I agree with you with the, the music bits, and obviously the writing got insane at some points, and it loses itself, like, for that third quarter. You know, but all of those obstacles in place and which succeed in making it not a great film or a necessarily recommended film. It feels like everyone else went hard out of their way to try to salvage what they could out of it. It really felt like, you know, F. Murray Abraham and John DiMaggio and and Doug Jones, even for his 40 seconds, you know, acted their asses off as best they could with what they had. And you get some fun chemistry between the uh, characters and you get some decent, you know, interest and in strong in the beginning and an interesting ending. And you end up with something that's, eh, it's okay. <laughs> when it never should have been. I'll be honest. I think if you had USA TV movie actors replacing the existing actors, you would have lost almost all of that chemistry and the entire thing would have fallen in on itself and been complete crap. I think this is what you get when you have a movie that's starting out as part of a, initiative to be the the basic cable channel with the most original films and you start out life as a movie about a stockbroker selling his soul to the devil and you end up a movie about gearheads selling their soul to a puppet and (laughs) when you get from a to let's say m which is where you end up this is what you get well it's it was ambitious well, even on the selling your soul to a puppet thing that you just mentioned, and it's one of the more peculiar things is, like, the Darkling doesn't do much. Like, the Darkling's influence is more vaguely implied than anything, like, as far as, like, seeing a direct influence. Because all of its, like, direct benefits to Jeff are pretty much just in a time jump, that by the time the time jump's over, it's bored of him and, and wants to move the fuck on. So. It is this, like, evil cherubim in a glass cage, which, to our knowledge, its confirmed abilities are minor illusions, telekinetic control of fabric, summon dump truck, and it can change any radio station to the visitor. And locate broken cars. And it can locate broken cars. (laughs) But, like, that's all it really does. Everything else, as far as the success stuff, like, normally in Faust stuff, you get something a little more overt. Or something as far as it twisting fate or something like that. And all we get is like the tragic element. Like the sacrifice elements we see very specifically. Not the reward bits. So it's, again, it's peculiar. And this well, is... we've determined its abilities to locate broken cars. And these are two men whose riches are founded entirely on locating broken cars. So 
it just found its niche as a demon. Yeah, it's basically just a divining rod for like a, you know those folks who used to go out on beaches with metal detectors, like looking for that's the darkling as you could go out with this. It's like, Ooh, that's uh, a good one. A Ferrari. Uh, oh man. So yeah, but I am I really expected you guys to pelt me with tomatoes on this one, so oh. I'm I'm glad you didn't. You guys liked it more than I did, so yay! It's hard for me to dislike anything with F. Murray Abraham is just... Honestly, I'd probably like it more, except I know what it could have been capable of. And that upsets me, it makes me bring it down lower. It's like, I, this movie had potential. I think they were playing with some neat stuff, I like some of the neat ideas, I love the casting. There was so much more potential here, and I can't help but see that, and it makes me angry. But... Yes, it's, it was it was good. Like I'll say again, like director Po Chi Long is a talented director. Before this, I can't say that for <laughs> after this because the only thing I've seen after this is Baby Blues, which I would say is an actively worse movie, but easy, more entertaining to watch. <laughs> but yeah, it was fun. I'm and uh, quality wise, it's pretty much exactly what I expected when I saw year 2000 usa network movie and had some other interesting bits had some bits that seemed like semi-ambitious but confounding and most of all ed doug jones dancing doug jones so i i would say my final word on this is to disagree with nick i think it does hit its potential oh really yeah i I think it does hit its potential (laughs) you just have to remember that not everybody goes to college (laughs) <laughs> and that's that's what i would have to say for the darkling which i keep wanting to call the dark angel nick has fonder memories of it because when he saw it as it faded to black at the end there was a voice that said up next silk stockings <laughs> like, yeah! now we get to the good stuff <laughs> and now swamp thing do not bring your evil here. Yes! <laughs> that might have been, that was probably off USA by that point. In 2000s, those were probably both gone. But eh, I think so. But forever in our hearts. And forever in our hearts is Doug Jones. And again, this is Doug Jones. four years of Doug Jones days. This is something I very much look forward to. So yeah, thanks for bearing with us on what was a long episode, but I felt obligated given the scarcity of the film to give folks the experience and there are parts that have, that are very fun to recount <laughs> that was a bonus for me i very much enjoyed this is, this is more fun than our christmas episode every year i love it yeah that's the, the saddest episode actually our behind the mask episode which will finally be out before this is out that one's actually might be a little bit we're so goddamn tired in that episode <laughs> Man, fuck it. that was like an hour so we made up this episode's gone so long it made up for the fact that like that one's barely an hour it's headed it's in at this point it's like, man i'm so so sorry this one went long but yeah we're just making up for lost time on behind the mask but <laughs> one way or the other we had fun watching this we always have fun talking about doug jones we we hope you had fun listening to this thank you so much for checking out this pod if you did like this episode you like what you hear if you want to leave us a review wherever you get your pods that'd be fabulous but the main thing is we just appreciate you listen and if you do want to follow us on socials at scary stuff pod on twitter at scary stuff podcast on instagram and we're on letterboxd as well so you can follow us on letterboxd and see letterboxd list there that lists every movie we've ever done which episode you can find them in and i just started up a new list specifically for doug jones day so you can see all three of our or now all four of our doug jones day episodes in a little list so makes them easy again thank you just so much 
I hope you enjoyed it. And in the meantime, this is Eric signing off, waiting to see who's going to sing the visitors and outro. <laughs> Nobody. This is Nick saying. <laughs> this is just Nick saying. Happy Doug Jones Day, everybody. This is Jake saying Happy Doug Jones Day, and up next, Silk Stockings. <laughs> I'm a visitor. Take you for a ride, visitor. Leave you satisfied. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody didn't do it. God damn it! We had to. I did it for the intro. <laughs> She's outrageous. She's truly, truly, truly outrageous. outrageous.